Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday, January 9th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Good morning. Freehold, New Jersey is his full name. Freehold <laughs> would be his first name. Absolutely. Okay, true. good deal. Good deal. Um, NFL football, everything goes planned. I mean, Freehold, you would be the NFL guy, the resident NFL expert. Whether you are or not, we've been. I, I didn't pay much attention. I watched the Panthers. That's about it. Well, they suck. Um, they won. They don't make the playoffs. Everybody makes the playoff except <laughs> the Panthers and the National Football League and the Packers. The Packers blew it at home. Right? Yeah, that, um, that's what I was going to say. The, the Packers was the most surprising, especially since they lost in a low-scoring game. Yeah. Because if they lost, I would have thought it would have been you know high-scoring. But that's, Some, that's pretty crazy. Something happens in Green Bay that turns every quarterback into a, uh, I hate to say this, but kind of an interception machine. I, I don't know why. Uh, remember we talked the other week about the other week about the um the Green Bay Packers have gone 31 or two years with two quarterbacks I mean that's think about that guys I mean that's pretty odd bizarre in that period of time they won two world championships two Super Bowls um far wins one probably should have won two Rodgers wins one probably should have won two um Somebody told me the other, oh, there ain't a little lot of difference in one and two. Start twice as many, you know, it's half as much. There's a lot of difference in, in two. And name the quarterbacks who have won two Super Bowls and name the quarterbacks who have won one Super Bowl. The list of two is a lot shorter than the list of um of one. I, I guess my in my intrigue with the Packers, they're they're kind of a throwback. You know, the city owns the team. It's um it's old school football. It's the frozen tundra. I mean, it's um it's tradition and history and old school NFL, but they snuck it up last night against the Lions, had a chance to win, and they're in. Uh, at home, when the Packers historically have had a chance to win and they're in, they normally win. It was a warm day or a warm night in Green Bay, only 26 degrees at kickoff. <laughs> oh, I, don't yeah. much colder, I don't know how much colder it got as the, uh, as the day progressed. Speaking of warm weather, cold weather, I want to get to something here in just a couple of minutes. Um, tonight... The Georgia Bulldogs and the TCU Horned Frogs play for college football's na- uh, national championship. Dogs and the Frogs. Yeah, and there are a lot of moving parts in college football right now. I mean, I kept up over the weekend, um, you know, the the NIL, the transfer portal, and, you know, he's leaving this school, committed to another school. Um, I love it when the coaches say they're not poaching. You know, they're not um, trying to um, fleece the other team's rosters. <laughs> Yes, you are. You believe that for a no, minute? No, of course I don't believe that uh, for a single minute. There's so many behind-the-scenes uh, communications happening between um, you know schools and players. And Well, I mean, they just wanted to come here. Yeah, they wanted to come here because you asked their mom would they be interested in coming here or, or their father or their brother-in-law or whoever that point of contact was. College football is in just a, a state of flux. I mean, it's, it's just completely and totally different. Um than at how it has historically been. I was asking someone over the weekend, so if we did away with the transfer portal, would it go from being the wild, wild west of college football to simply the wild west? And their response was yes. Yeah, I think I mean, that's that, a that's great That's the analogy. first thing we've got to do is address the, the transfer portal. I mean, obviously a kid has a right to transfer. I mean, if he gets to a, a university at a program and it just doesn't work, I mean, he should have every right of the world to, to transfer to another school but there was a waiting period. We've got to address that in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what the answer is, but but the transfer portal is just unfettered free agency. Uh, you know, on Wednesday, I can decide I don't want to be here Thursday, and somebody offered me a buck or two or three, and I'm off to the races doing my thing. And, and look, guys, you know me. I mean, I've been one that advocated for 
you know, the new, I don't know, the new realities in college football as opposed to the old NCAA. Uh, and I do think it's a bit funny, humorous. I find humor in it that the NCAA has lost all control of the cash cow other than the NCAA March Madness, the college basketball tournament. I mean, this is it. I mean, it's March Madness and college football. That's their cash cow. And they've lost control, total control of what's happening in college football. And um, and if they had not argued and taken kids to court, universities to um to the woodshed about whether or not you can buy the cream cheese on a bagel and whether or not giving a baseball cap to a kid is a major infraction, uh, we wouldn't have gotten here. It's an exa- It's a classic example of what happens when you refuse to give an itch. If you refuse to give an itch sooner or later, if you're on the bad side of the deal or the wrong, the immoral side of the deal, you're forced to give a mile. And had the NCAA been willing to give a little, we wouldn't have all this craziness that is running rampant in college football today. But tonight at 8 o'clock in the no tailgating SoFi Stadium, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> really? you see that? Yeah. No. No tailgating allowed in oh, California. Well. Yeah, yeah. Playing a college football game. Yeah between two teams from the South uh, out in the West. Just stop playing the, the championship game. game in California. You're just not allowed to have well, fun. I mean, here's the answer. The answer's easy. Stop playing the championship game in California. Right. Don't play college football's championship game in the most liberal state in America. Just stop doing it. It's uh, I mean, we've always argued. Freehold's kind of suggested it's somewhat of a niche sport. I mean, it has national appeal, no doubt about it. Midwest and the South is really the um, – you know, the um, the most fertile ground of college football. So with the Midwest, what do the Midwest and South have with California? Well, we're one of 50 states. That's about yeah, it. That's about all. So, so stop going to California to play your national championship game. Play it in a Midwestern city or a Southern city. That's kind of the, um, I mean, wouldn't you agree, Freehold? I mean, you're a um, NFL guy. You're from a major metropolitan area. I mean, you would agree the Midwest and South are the, the once again, the most fertile ground for college football? Yeah, 100%. But I'm trying to, like, think of- what is like? What's wrong with tailgating? Like, what could they possibly be saying you, you, to, you, to prohibit it? Someone may have killed a cow. <laughs> <laughs> well, there may be some beef or some pork or something. Uh, I would imagine had they asked for permission to tailgate vegetarian style, they may have been allowed to do that. A um, couple of transgenders, you know, um, debating whether or not they're having a period and talking about transgender. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that would have been allowed had um, they asked the right power. Uh, brokers is somebody on the phone yes okay let's go there <laughs> here is verd in marlboro county morning verd good morning how y'all doing hey verd it's been a good while um a uh, big thing i was in washington last week for four days uh hopeful to see uh a congressman elect rice sworn in and of course it didn't happen while i was there i left thursday afternoon but sit through about seven votes and uh was able to walk over Wednesday with uh, Congressman Fry and his press secretary over to the Capitol through the tunnels, and uh, that was pretty pretty exciting thing to do. But anyway, it didn't happen like we about 250 of us from the PD area in South Carolina went to Washington last Monday, and uh, you know none of us were there when he was actually sworn in. But, you know, glad it's behind us. It's time for them to get down to work and uh, had a conversation Saturday afternoon with uh Congress now I can say Congressman Fry and he's he's anxious uh, to get to work uh, reversing some of the bad policies that uh, the Biden administrations uh, had towards the people of the Seventh District plus the American citizens and uh, and he's also very anxious to already get back into the Seventh District and go around and meet with everybody and 
find out what the needs are from both the business owners, the farmers, and the, and the regular citizens. So very good trip, very interesting, uh, very educational about the workings of the house. I was in Brussels office uh, just about every day. I had a meeting Wednesday with Congressman Joe Wilson, and that went very well. So just a great week, and uh, glad this thing is behind us, and it's now it's time for uh, the Congress, uh, the House members, and the Senate to get to work for the American people. Thank you, Vert. Appreciate it, my man. Good to hear from you. Um, yeah, we do have a um, we, we do have a new speaker. Uh, the the Congress members to be elect were um, sworn in sometime shortly after the speaker's election. I would imagine that happened. I don't think they did it Friday night or Saturday morning. Probably later in the day, Saturday. Um, I actually reached back out to Ralph Norman. He's agreed to come on our show tomorrow, and I'll try to. I've, I've left Russell alone. Russell, and I've texted a little bit, but I've left him alone because he needs to get his feet under him and his bearings about him. Uh, we'll try to get Russell on the air with us sometime mid to late week, maybe. But Ralph's, uh, Ralph is a um, Ralph was a central figure in the holdouts. You know, not allowing the speaker to be elected as normal. Um, far more interesting to watch this process play itself out. I got to believe. Um, you know, the country was not, <laughs> I mean, the country was not at risk, despite what CNN may have said. You know, I got a theory on all of this, and, I, oh, yeah. and it's, it's kind of a macro theory, and I, it's probably one of the most insulting things I've ever said over over the airways, but I'll say it anyway. I mean, I don't intend to be insulting, but it is what it is. You know, I was at lunch Friday with a friend of mine, and uh, we have these politically rambling conversations, um, and he has a kind of a different worldview than I. I mean, we would probably agree 70% of the time he's a little bit less conservative than i am i know i'm a little bit less conservative on the scale of ideological conservatism than some of you i've accepted some degree of pragmatism that probably frustrates some of our listeners but um, he's a little bit left of center he'd still be a republican he would be the quintessential moderate republican uh, he's a professional person um has done well financially uh, very in tune locked in understanding pays attention to what's going on in the world around him listens to this broadcast uh, but he doesn't have to get up as early as I do because he's got, you know, more financial security uh, than, than I've attained over over the years. But but we were kind of kind of plowing the field together about what the problem is in American politics. And we landed here, guys. And I know this is insulting. And take it for what it's worth. We can have a conversation about how insulting or not it is. But we've determined that the reason America finds it, not the only reason. I mean, there is no only reason. I mean, there's no one reason. If we fix this, everything will be fine in America. But if you believe we're a nation in decline, what are the contributing factors? And I do believe, sincerely, without question, we're a nation in decline. Now, are we? can we turn it around? I would imagine we could if we choose to. But, um, but if we're a nation in decline, both of us agree to that, um, what is the biggest contributor? I mean, what, what is the biggest problem? Obviously, there are a lot of problems. That There's not one specific issue that causes all the problems that lead to um, a nation decline. But we've discerned, determined, um, unofficially, <laughs> that the problem is not many Americans can critically think. Now, now the, the, the fork in that road is how many can but choose not to and how many cannot just simply don't have the intellectual Are you saying we're dumb? No, I don't even, that, 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 we don't want to say that. Okay. I mean, that's, that, that's too insulting, even for me to say <laughs> over the airwaves. But, um, I mean, I go back to the conversation. I mean, I've, I've said this over the airwaves before. I got a buddy of mine who's 41, 
So he's not a close friend. We're too big of um. I mean, his father would be more in my age group than than he is. But we have these these conversations at the gym, and he's a um he's an educated lawyer, and he and he didn't want to get married because he wanted to pursue a career. Well, he's kind of got himself in a place now that his career uh his, his his career orientation has paid dividends. He's got himself in a good place as it relates to you know his income, his job status, and all these other things. So he's looking for a wife. I mean, he doesn't wake up every morning, you know, putting, you know, um, Calvin Klein cologne on, saying today's the day. You know, if I can only, in, yeah. Oh, I mean, is that he, how you do it? Yeah, but he's not doing that. <laughs> well, I mean, wearing, you know, the um, the, the designer jam. I mean, you see where I'm headed. But but he's actively in um, passive pursuit of a spouse. And, you know, we, we talk occasionally, talk a lot about politics at the gym. But but every now and then I'll ask him, I'll say, hey, man, how's that pursuit going? <laughs> You know, how's that, um, how's that trying to find a wife going? He said, not so good. Not so good at all. He said, look, every woman my age or, or a little bit younger is a vegetarian and believes things that CNN says. And I would rather mm. stay single than marry someone who believes the garbage CNN feeds them wow. every single day. Well, I mean, is, is that person stupid or is that person gullible? Is that person naive? Is that person emotionally invested in a worldview that may or may not be true? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But, but when I watch CNN, and I'm not a rocket scientist, but I know I'm not a moron. I mean, I got some test scores to prove I'm not a moron. I'll just leave it there. But but having said that, Reb, I joke. Remember last week when I started down the road of join me in prayer? Yeah. I mean, there, there's I some that. intellectual abilities you've got to have to kind of get there. Um, we, I saw something else over the weekend. Uh, I'll try to find it, over, you know, during one of the breaks, but but it was another story that just kind of like, wow. I mean, how do you say that, you political son of a gun, you? <laughs> um, but but the, the, the arrogance, you know, the, the, the celebrity-dom that these folks chase. But but I do believe when you look at the, um, the long list of things wrong in America, near the top of that list has to be our inability to think. Are we choosing not to think, or do we have we lost the capacity to think? There's a bell curve of IQ. I mean, you got people that are real dumb and people that are real smart. And, and then you've got kind of a, a creeping up to average intelligence and then a kind of a moderate, you know, in, uh, decline in the number of people who have above average intelligence. So in that bell curve, you know, where, where do people lose the ability to critically think? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. But, but how can you watch some of the nonsense that the news reports and believe it? But, but when you read some of the data, despite the news' approval ratings or trustworthiness being as low as it's ever been, it ain't zero. It's not 6 or 8 or 10 or 12%. It's still 35% of Americans find the news to be trustworthy. What Really? One in three Americans believe that CNN is honestly telling them the truth. Well, if one in three Americans believe that CNN is telling them the truth, then then why do you believe that? I mean, is it, is it your faith in humanity? Is it the inability to call somebody a liar? Is it naivete? Is it is it just being gullible or is it just stupid? I mean, I think that's got to be a part of the debate. I'm sorry, guys. I know that's really insulting, but it can't all be we're naive or we're gullible or we just kind of want to believe what we know. Some of it is we lack the intellectual horsepower and what percentage of Americans. Here's what my friend said Friday at lunch when it when posed the question, because we ended up there and I said, OK, how many what percentage of Americans do you believe have the capacity to critically think? 
And now my, my, he said, what do you think? You're the, you're the radio show host. You're the guy with all the, the opinions. I said, 20%. He said, no, you're too high. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, it's probably closer to 10%. That's insulting. But there's no other wow. way to interpret those comments than to say the American people are insulting. So, so if I'm right, let's hypothetically say I'm right, that the reason America has itself in such a quandary, I mean, how could a nation of critically thinking people keep electing people that spend a trillion dollars we don't have? I mean, if we were a moderately intelligent nation and you got a chance to go to the poll in, in South Carolina, and I've got a chance to go to the poll in Nebraska, and somebody else has a, you know, a moderately intelligent person who has the ability to critically think, goes to the poll in Oregon. We're not electing the people that spend a trillion dollars every year we don't have, are we? I mean, how can smart people rationalize that? Unless you're gullible, naive, um, self-interested. I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying it's all about being dumb, but, but there's got to be some... <laughs> some degree of stupidity involved in our in our being a nation decline and once again i'm not saying it's the only reason that we're kind of you know heading down this road but because once again we we keep voting for the same people expecting to get a different result 96% of the members of house the house of representatives get reelected they have a 17% approval rating I mean, help me, help me, you know, connect those numbers. 94% get elected, 17% or, or, you know, they have a 17, who, who, how does that square up? I mean, if we are a serious nation, if we are a nation of thinkers, we're just not, we're simply, I mean, you know it, I know it. I'm just, as Rev says, willing to say things that you know to be true. Mm-hmm. So is this the number more or less than 20%? I mean, some of you out there are thinkers and you know, you are. And there's no shame in being someone who thinks and, and tries to study and understand and discern, determine, um, dissect, debate some of these issues. What do you believe? Do you believe more or less that 20% of Americans are critical thinkers? Um, and, and once again, a myriad of reasons as to why they don't critically think uh, of that 20% of the other 80%, how many of that 80% just don't have the intellectual capacity to critically think? And because of that, CNN just kind of leads them down this road. MSNBC leads them down this road. Fox News leads them down this road. MSNBC, or excuse me, NBC leads them. Wall Street Journal, every media outlet has a kind of an easy job. I mean, you wonder in the media empires around America, how many of the um, editorial staffs and, and, you know, the high-ranking management say, hey, they don't know any better. I mean, just tell them Joe didn't know anything about Hunter. Just tell them Fauci never lied about the day. You see where I'm headed? And, and we'll, we'll kind of stay in that lane for a second or two or three. Take a break. Takes Mondays to make Fridays back in just a minute. You know, I want to get to these um, couple of stories I want to talk about. Obviously, one will be the speakership. I'll, I don't want to wait until tomorrow, but Ralph Norman can give us an inside the um, kind of inside the vote look at uh, the 15 rounds. Kind of like a heavyweight fight, 15 rounds. You know, Mike Tyson versus uh, Michael Spinks or whomever. Wasn't Congressman Norman? I mean, we could have considered him basically a, a Never Kevin type of guy for a while there. He was in the Chip Roy camp. Remember, we divided the camp of holdouts into two. I mean, we did that from afar. Well, uh, you know, I think I'm right. I mean, I think there was some seeking attention, wanted to write a book, have a radio show, television show, and whatnot. I'm personally motivated, not motivated by the good of the country or the betterment of the Senate, excuse me, the House. But then you had Chip Roy, and I think Roy really earned a lot of credibility with the Republican primary voter 
Uh, my concern is this, uh, because I went back and read, and I can generalize it the best I know how, but the concessions that were made, um, I mean, McCarthy, uh, excuse me, McCarthy supposedly will allow, you know, single votes on all 12 of the individual appropriation subcommittees. We talked a little bit about that last week. Um, and once again, the devil's in the details. I don't have the details. Nobody has exactly the specifics of what they agreed upon. But in, in, in general, McCarthy agreed to have votes on all 12 of the appropriation bills. That's the way it's supposed to be done. Um, that's a big deal. If we can get back to budgeting um, and arguing about, you know, the, the, the way I look at it is this, Reb. I mean, every time the government appropriates dollars, it's making a deal with somebody. I mean, it is. It's making, now, when, when the Democrats are in charge, they have preferred interest. They make their deal. They allocate or prioritize spending with those preferred interests. When the Republicans win, there's a, you know, a kind of another list that they find preferred and favorable. It'd be like, am I on the VIP club or not? Well, when the Democrats are in, green energy obviously would have an advantage. Some of the um, social programs, welfare programs would be prioritized. When Republicans are in charge, um, fossil fuels comes to mind. You know, that there would be a, um, a reason to believe those stocks because the government does pick winners and losers. I mean, it's crony capitalism 101. The point that Chip Roy kept making, and I would say it a little bit different than he would because he's not from Pamplico. But, but the point Roy was making was, and, you know, if we're going to make a deal with a special interest and every time we vote on a budget, we're basically making a deal with a special interest. Is it the entitlement um, conglomerates or the um, what did we call it last week? The um, the welfare industrial complex and COVID has kind of normalized a lot of these um, shenanigans is what I'll refer to them as. But but if we're going to make a deal and we're going to spend multiple trillions of dollars, some we have, some we don't have. At least, at least let's let the American people know what deal we're making with whom. And in the continuing resolutions and omnibus bills, when the, when the House and Senate made a deal, they didn't have to tell anybody. I mean, nobody understands how to plunder through a, a, you know, a budget, an omnibus bill, and understand exactly where the money. I mean, who has time for that? I mean, we're too busy watching Seinfeld, you know, and, and living our lives and going to ball games and, and trying to find some happiness and solace in our, in our professional, personal business lives. Um, nobody has time to try to peel the onion apart that is an omnibus bill. But, but if we appropriate it as we should, and we had these hearings, these debates, these disagreements, um, in other words, if the, if the Republicans want to spend money in places the Democrats don't, they debate about it. And it's ready and available. I mean, you can try to understand whether or not these, um, when they, when they appropriate on these 12 subcommittees, whether it makes money to spend here, there, or yonder. Another thing that I think McCarthy gave into was requiring 72, mem- 72 hours for members to review bills. Um, that is intentional. I mean, that, that is aimed at ending these omnibus spending packages that come in at the last moment. You know, it's the day before Christmas. It's the day before the debt ceiling. It's the day before the infrastructure crumbles in America. I mean, it's always, the, you know, some cataclysmic event that is about to happen. Well, the two things that McCarthy gave up that I think have a, an, an absolute immediate effect or impact on how we spend taxpayer dollars is the, um, the vote on all 12 individual appropriate, appropriating committees and the 72 hours required now 
for members to review some of the legislation. Um, I mean, and once again, will they read it? Probably not. They'll probably still have some staff member or intern read it or, or some trusted advisor and then try to, um, you know, the cliff note. I mean, I can hear a member of Congress saying, hey, read the bill, give me the cliff note. Don't mislead me, shoot me straight, but read the bill, give me the cliff note. Um, but it will, I mean, the, the intent is to stop the omnibus spending, the, these bills that have to be done at the last second. This is kind of interesting to me. And and the language got a little bit confusing. It was um it was articulated one way in the Wall Street Journal, a little bit different way in the National Review. Um, McCarthy agreed, stick with me, that fiscal year 2024 domestic discretionary spending won't be higher than it was in fiscal year 2022. Um, now, now you've already heard some rumblings among some of the Republican hawks that this put the Pentagon's budget on the chopping block. It does. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if we're going to all of a sudden um, agree that discretionary spending, and you know what discretionary spending is, that's non-entitlement spending. I mean, that's what we can do. You know, we can't, unless we reform Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, they're on autopilot. I mean, that takes an act of Congress. I mean, if Congress agrees that we're going to reform Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid, I mean, that, that, they need to do that, but I don't know whether they have the political courage to do, but the rest is discretionary spending. So when you start debating about discretionary spending, there's going to be this big debate between the hawks and the doves about how much needs to go toward uh, funding the military. And I've already heard some Republicans now say, look, I'm for a balanced budget amendment, but not on the back of our men and women in armed services. They will never say the Pentagon because they know the Pentagon's not as revered as it once was. It'll be all about the, um, you know, the 21-year-old soldier from Johnsonville, South Carolina. We don't want to leave him on the battlefield, you know, short of the equipment or necessary, um, I don't know, support that he needs to be successful. Um, the, the other issue, and I'll get Raft explaining this tomorrow when he comes on, that the other issue is the House Freedom Caucus um, secured additional seats on this all-important House Rules Committee that we tried to explain last week. And in essence, all that does is diminish the speaker's authority. I mean, it, it, it gives the rank and file members of the um, of the majority party a lot more influence and in, in, in where the priorities lie. Where do we go from here? And um, and historically, well, I say historically, in recent history, it's been kind of heavy handed by the speaker. The speaker stacks the rule committee, you know, with a lot of friendlies. In other words, I'll put you on this rules committee, but I need you to be for me every time I want to direct policy in one direction or another. Um, in other words, th- there won't be a lot of love lost between McCarthy and the Rules Committee as they process the agenda, whatever that may be. Now, the investigative side of this will be, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, McCarthy will appoint Jim J- Jordan probably today, if he hadn't already appointed him uh, chair of the judiciary. And uh, we did the kind of the Monty Hall bit on Friday when we said, and we didn't get any feedback, and I'd love to hear from our listeners. We did it late in the show, and that could be a show in itself. I mean, if there are three doors, and, you know, the um, the House is ready to make a deal, behind door number one is whether the FBI conspired with a social media or tech giant to influence the outcome of the election. In other words, did the FBI meddle in a presidential election, that's behind door number one. Behind door number two is, does Joe Biden know anything about Hunter Biden's business dealings? I mean, that's the simple definition or the simple explanation. And behind door number three is, 
you know, did we fund gain of research or gain of function research? Did Dr. Fauci mislead? I want to be careful about lie. Did Dr. Fauci mislead when he appeared before Congress and said we did not? And um, we need all three, though. Well, I mean, sure, yeah, but we do. But I mean, you can't you can't fight but on so many right. fronts. I mean, there's a responsibility the Republicans have to govern. And let me ask you this about the twenty, the holdouts, the deal. Um, did they do a service for the country? I think they did. I mean, I really do. I think they did absolutely. I think Chip Roy um, articulated a compelling vision for the way the House needs to work. And the Freedom Caucus gave some things. I mean, they didn't get everything they wanted. They got a lot. Now, now the problem with the Freedom Caucus is, and it's not all, I mean, I said there, there's kind of a, um, there's a separation within membership of the Freedom Caucus. You've got a group led by Chip Roy who pushed for many of these changes that I think propose a compelling vision for where the House needs to be in working on behalf of the American people. Um, once again, empowering the rank and file diminishing the um the importance of the the leadership but this is all about spending i mean rest assured this is all about spending and um you know what happens i tried to google over the weekend because i don't trust mcconnell any further that i can throw him and mcconnell will always figure out a way to work hand in hand mcconnell will work with a democrat in the white house a lot more than he went a republican in the house to figure out a way to appropriate end around some of the House authorized ability. Um, the House is the, uh, I mean, that's the starting place. Remember Friday when um when Jordan and Rick and Bob were here? Lowe was not here Friday, but, um and we talked a little bit about a lunch we had and having presided over the Senate, I told Mike that, you know, don't let, don't let a bill, I mean, if there's something you want to get for the Johnsonville Fire Department or the Pamplico Police Department, that's in Senator Rickenbach's district, don't wait on that bill to get to the Senate before you try to create the line item. Go to your House member. Go to your members of your delegation. The, the, the budget begins in the House. Go to Representative Lowe, who sits on the Ways and Means and says, look, um, I need two patrol cars for the city of Johnsonville's police department. You know, I need a, um, a tanker truck. I mean, I'm not saying they do or don't. I'm just using those as, I mean, I think we all agree that the government should fund law enforcement. It should fund, uh, you know, some of the uh, first responders. I don't care how conservative you are. So let's say there's a need in some of these small towns. Let's say there's a need in Florence. Um, that's the way it, because once again, the budget begins in the House, and it's a lot easier. Well, I think, you know, I don't think McConnell's going to give, it would be interesting, and I don't know the answer to this, and I, I may ask Ralph this tomorrow. What is the sense of McConnell in the House? I mean, if the, if the House is going to go back to budgeting and actually voting on the 12 appropriations bills, and McConnell needs things done, hmm. so he walks over to the House side. How was he received over there? You got to believe he's not very popular with the Republican voting base well, right I mean, now. But but a, a lot of folks, a lot of things happen in Washington that aren't very popular with the uh, Republican voting True. base. I mean, there's no doubt about it. McCarthy's not real popular with the Republican primary voting base. Um, there there's not a lot of Republican office holders who are popular. I mean, there's this great disconnect between the Republican primary voter. And sometimes I wonder, are they aware of this? How aware are they? I mean, they see approval ratings. They know what Congress or what the American public feel about about Congress. But um, but that'll be an interesting dichotomy that they'll have to address and deal with. Once again, when McConnell, if McConnell, um, walks over to the House or, or proposes in a House member's office, let's say McConnell walks to the um to the office of the Speaker 
and says, hey, we can't monkey around with this defense budget. I mean, we really, we got money committed to Ukraine. We got committed to Raytheon and Halliburton and all these other military defense contractors. We can't monkey around with that budget. And McCarthy says, Senator, I can't do anything about that. I mean, I, you know, they won. I mean, they held out. The only way I could become speaker was to make these concessions. As part of making those concessions, I don't, I don't run the rules committee like Pelosi did. I don't run the rules committee like Boehner did. Um, the rules committee is kind of a, um, I mean, it is influenced heavily by the rank and file membership. So, you know, if you want to try to fund the military even more, we're, we're going to have to sit down with some of these Freedom Caucus backroom boys is what we refer to those as. And, and I think that's a good day in America. I mean, I, I do believe that's a good day in America. And it won't take but a minute or two or three. In fact, if some of, some of this was happening yesterday morning, it will not be long before you'll hear that the Republicans are neutering the defense budget. They're leaving our men and women vulnerable. I mean, that, that'll be the scare language, and it, it'll, it'll be funded by Raytheon and Halliburton and Honeywell and all these you know tremendous uh, military-industrial complex uh, participants. But but that's recipients. Let me recipients. No question about it. But that's kind of where where I think we're headed. But I, I really want Ralph to walk us through why he was so convinced that Chip Roy had this vision for where the house should be. But yeah, but I think the um I think the holdouts did a great service to the body that is the United States Congress. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I want to go back to something Bree said. I sent Rev an article last night, and we're jumping around, but I mean, it, sometimes a caller calls and just I don't know, it, 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 it stirs the soul to a point where I think this um this issue is worthy of of having a conversation. I sent Rev an email last night, um, and the name of the email was. I want to make sure I get this right. The Republic. Uh, the for, Republic for, for which, which Wyoming, Wyoming stands. stands. Yeah. <laughs> and and, so and I joked this? around. Well, I mean, we, we've had this conversation, and I know a lot of you feel as I do because you've let me know. You feel like you're a misfit. You feel like you're misplaced. You feel like your worldview, your personal alignment, your value system is, is just more and more and more out of kilter. Um, we're having a debate about, I mean, I, I joke around on the show about, you know, I could care less whether a transgender is having a, a period. But the world cares, and the world covers this sort of thing. And if you don't believe it, watch Twitter. Go to Facebook. Check the news out. Um, And I found an article yesterday in the American Conservative to the Republic for which Wyoming stands. And they're talking about some of the uh, interpretations that we have in society. I'll give an example. Um, In Wyoming, BLM means the Bureau of Land Management. And they don't apologize for it. I mean, it's BLM. Every time I mentioned BLM land to someone back east, I need to explain this person moved to Wyoming. Uh, In Wyoming, violence means a physical altercation, not misgendering someone whose personal pronoun don't match his or her biology. In Wyoming, Liz Cheney is frequently an expletive, not the apothesis of political statesmanship and integrity. Um, so, So the traditions of Wyoming, and that's what this article is trying to convey, um, to the republic for which Wyoming stands. And um, and when I joke around and say, hey, I just think for the world's sake and mine, I'd be better off on a thousand acre ranch in Montana worrying about cattle and horses, um, minding my own business. I mean, I'm not going off the grid. I'm not losing my mind. I'm not writing a manifesto and I'm damn sure not mailing bombs in the mail. But 
But but I want to go to something Bree said because he kind of implied that he feels somewhat of a misfit. You don't feel like you're fitting in any longer, and you're nervous about whether or not to express your opinions in public or not. And um, I mean, Rev and I have had multiple conversations with physicians who have said as clearly and plainly as anybody ever could how nervous they were to confront the orthodoxies of the the vaccine and what the the government had made its mind up. I'm complicit with big pharma about the um you know what needed to be done and what didn't need to be done. So if they had questions and they wanted to challenge them of the status quo, they were worried about their job. Well, they're worried about their job not because it may be out of sorts with um the Bureau of Land Management, but it may, you know, they may offend a Black Lives Matter activist or some transgender having a period. Um, and you know, that, that there's a lot of people that I think feel that way, but, but I think the, and I think it's intentional. I mean, I think there's, there, there's an effort and I wrote two, two words down this morning. Um, we, we refer to certain people and characteristics in American politics as characters. I mean, we don't have enough characters in the world today. When Dr. Bolt comes tomorrow, at some point in time during the conversation, he'll name Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was a political character. I mean, he was a little bit fearless. Some of the documents he signed had blood on them, blood from his own body, you know, where he'd fought in some of the battles. Well, think about it, guys. If you're trying to hijack the mindset of a nation, don't you remove some of the most menacing qualities of that hijack? In other words, if I'm trying to take over the heart soul of a country, wouldn't I attack the, the, the most prepared to fight back to begin with? In other words, if I'm going to rob a store and there are four people in the store and one guy 6'2", 210, looks like he goes to the gym three or four days a week, everybody else is frail and fragile or obese or, or feminine. I mean, what, what one person am I worried about? I mean, if I'm the robber, if I'm the perpetrator of the crime and I walk into the business and once again, there's six people in there and, and I basically surveyed the grounds and I've made my decision. Remember the movie Josie Wales when he says, Josie, why'd you shoot him first? Because he was wild eyed. You know, in other words, uh, he was a gunfighter and Josie Wales said, you could just see the wildness in his right. eyes. Yeah, who's the bigger threat? That, that's exactly right. I mean, that, that wild eyed guy, Josie Wales has made his mind up. Uh, you know, the guy with the wild eyes might be the one that shoots you before you get a, a chance to shoot him. So Josie Wells made a calculus. Well, if you walk into a building and once again, th there's somebody who resembles cur uh, courage or masculinity, uh, w what one person are you more aware of? The government has done this, guys. Trust me. I mean, this is not some, um, you know, crazy, out, out, outrageous conspiracy theory that the government has organized itself against those that they believe will resist. I mean, we've seen this time and time and time again, and it's, it's really what frustrates me more than anything. So, so the person who writes the article, you know, about Wyoming, they're basically saying some of the things, so some of the same things that, um, that we say. So, so here's what's happening. You ready? Cause I think the article refers to this rib instead of fighting the government being miserable and losing why not just go to Wyoming? Why, why argue over BLM? Why argue over transgenderism? Why argue over wokeism or political correctness? Why not just go to Wyoming where they don't celebrate those sorts of things? Well, if the government can herd you all in one state or two or three, I mean, that's to their advantage, right? I mean, that, you know, the, the, remember the uh, scene in Springsteen on Broadway? I'm bringing up Bruce again when he says the river. The river was written because his sister got pregnant in high school. And she married the guy. 
and they moved to the hills of west of uh, um, northern New Jersey because that's where the Cowboys live. <laughs> and he says that a bit tongue in cheek. Well, I mean, when you say the word cowboy, are, are you inferring some degree of outlawism? You know, resistance. Um, I'm walking to the beat of my own drum. Thank you very much. And when I read the article about you know Wyoming. It just, it, it, it kind of dawns on me that there is an absolute, and this is not, a, and I know the leftists don't buy this because the leftists think masculinity is toxic. I mean, they've already told us I mean, that we got to rid the country of, of masculinity. Well, well, the reason the left wants the country rid of masculinity is masculinity is a bit of a threat. If you're walking into a store to rob it, what, and then once again, there's sort of a masculine, courageous looking man over on one side, who are you most nervous about? What did Josie Wells say? Why did you shoot him first, Josie? Because he had that wild eye. I mean, he had that wild look in his face. Um, that's that's kind of where we are in America today. And and instead of people being courageous and participating in the system, they're withdrawing. I mean, I catch myself doing this a lot. I mean, I catch myself a uh, hundred times a day saying, man, it's not worth the fight. I mean, I know how I feel. I know that government is out to squelch this inside of not just me. I mean, there are millions of people like me. I think there used to be 100 million. There's probably 50 million now because they beat it out of most people. That They've made it far more advantageous to roll over and play dead. Standing against the government has a lot of consequences. Arguing against the government has a lot of consequences. And this is not some conspiracy theory. Remember the circle at the top of the circle. Imagine you're looking at a clock. And at 12 o'clock, is I have full faith in the federal government. And at 3 o'clock, I've lost a little faith in the government. At 6 o'clock, I don't know whether to believe them or not. At 9 o'clock, I know not to believe the government. I know they'll mislead. I know they'll misrepresent COVID data. I know that they conspired with the FBI to um, change the outcome of the election. I know that Hunter Biden. You see where I'm headed? And all of a sudden, between 9 and 12 on that clock, we become ungovernable. Or we all moved to Montana and Wyoming. And, you know, that's kind of where the cowboys go. But, but and I'm telling you, that that is a deep, deep, it, it sounds surfacy, and it appears to be, I understand it. It's like, hey, here he is with that prepper mentality and that off-the-grid talk. I mean, I get mm-hmm. it. People like that get marginalized. Conversations like that get marginalized. But, but you're beginning to see more and more and more of that sort of mindset creep into the daily lives of average Americans, people who never imagined in a million years that they would um, revolt, that they would say, thank you, but no, thank you. I'm not doing that. And I do believe, Reb, that at some point in time, this is where you probably get monitored. I mean, this is probably where the government does put you on a list somewhere. I'm not encouraging anything. I just think it's a practical reality. When the government loses the faith of the American people and, and, and the, the, the moral authority is so highly questioned that you wonder whether or not, let me ask you a question. If we find out, if Jim Jordan finds out that the FBI conspired with Twitter, and I've read the emails, I've read the Matt Taibbi emails, and it looks to me like the the FBI was more interested than Twitter was. I mean, there, there's a couple of correspondences with Twitter. I mean, imagine a 25-year-old Twitter employee in San Francisco say to the FBI, hey, you sure we can do this? You cool with this? I mean, it should be the other way around, right? I mean, it should be some bureaucrat in Washington saying, hey, we can't do that. I mean, I know what we asked you to do, but we can't do that. But it appears to me that when someone pumped the brakes in those, uh, you know, uh, discourses or, or um, dialogues, 
that it was, I mean, it was the F, I'm, excuse me, it was Twitter. It was some 29-year-old from, from Silicon Valley that said, hey, I'm not comfortable doing this. In other words, when, when the FBI says, hey, can you deplatform that person? Can you censor that opinion? Can you stop that thread from becoming more and more mainstream? Twitter normally did it, but at a couple of times in that, so, so if at 12 o'clock noon, is I have full faith and trust in the federal government, at 3 o'clock, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> did you read those Matt Taibbi emails? Have you heard what Jim Jordan challenged Jim Fauci about? And then all of a sudden we get to 6 o'clock, and Jordan's more believable. And Matt Taibbi's more believable. What well, what happens on the other side of six? And I think that's where we are. I don't know where we are. I mean, I think some of us are at seven. Some of us are at 11. You know, we, we, we're to the point of not wanting to be governed. We don't think the government has the moral authority. So, so stick with me for a second. So let's say door number one, door number two, door number three. That's the analogy I used last week. Monty Hall says, let's make a deal. We, we've already got to deal with the speakership, right? I mean, we know what's going to happen. No, we don't know what's going to happen there. We know what concessions were made to the Freedom Caucus, to the back row boys. We know the concessions included that they'll now vote on all 12 individual appropriations. I mean, that's part of the deal they made. Um, we know that they've agreed to require 72 hours to review any, uh, any bill that comes down the pike. That is to discourage the omnibus process. Remember, the omnibus always has to be done the day before Christmas, the day before before recess, the day before the um, the debt ceiling needs to be raised, uh, you know, the, the urgency required. Well, now we hope to get to a, a more normal way of budgeting. So McCarthy also agreed that, um, and this is their words, not mine, this is from the Speaker's office, fiscal year 2024 domestic discretionary spending won't be higher than it was in fiscal year 2022. Well, that in the world of government is a spending cut. Because it doesn't have an increase. In other words, we got to go back to 2022 levels. That's, I mean, it's not really a spending cut. It's just kind of a spending freeze is what it would be. Well, that in government amounts to a spending cut. Um, that puts, I mean, it does. I mean, it puts the Pentagon budget in question. It really and truly does. Doesn't bother me. I'm not as hawkish as most Republicans are. And then they secured additional seats on the House Rules Committee, which is a very, very important uh, committee. And, um, and it, it's really the committee speakers use to move their agenda. And the speaker could almost single-handedly whip that committee in place and his agenda or her agenda. I mean, there's just no debate. I mean, the speaker wants it done. It's going to get done. Well, now there's going to be more representation by some of the um, some of the Chip Roy camp that will have some fundamental, fundamental debate. It empowers the rank-and-file members of the House. I mean, they, they, there's more of a balance. In other words, a 500-pound man on a uh, seesaw and a 100-pound man, there's no balance there. All of a sudden, we've got a 250-pound man and a 220-pound man. I mean, that's a little more in balance. The speaker's going to have to work with the rank-and-file members on what agenda items or issues he forces through. So that's the deal we've made there. Now, you know, how it comes to fruition, I don't know. You don't know. Nobody does. Uh, th these are words spoken and, and uh, you know, I would imagine there's some notes, and I, I would imagine there have been some signed proposals. I mean, you don't take somebody's word just because they say it. There's some um, defining of what those agreements look like. But, but while we're doing that, we have a chance to look behind door number one, two, or three. And I've asked our listeners, and I'd love to know, um, not that I can influence the debate, behind door number one, 
is I'm going to try to do it as, um, as cliff noty as I can. You ready? Behind door number one, what did Joe Biden know about the, the Hunter Biden laptop? The information on the hard drive of the Hunter Biden laptop says that Joe Biden knew a lot more than Joe Biden says he did. Is that true or not? We're going to investigate. We're going to find out, in fact, what Joe Biden knew. Did Joe Biden personally gain as a result of his son being appointed to boards and commissions and paid a lot of money to do things he was not qualified to do? We know that to be true. The one thing we don't know is how Biden benefited. Joe Biden. We know Hunter Biden benefited enormously. We know Biden flew on Air Force Two and all these other good things. But on that hard drive is some pretty incriminating information and Jim Jordan will get to the bottom of it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The House Subcommittee, or excuse me, the House Judiciary Committee will investigate that. Okay, that's door number one. Behind door number two, the origin of COVID and how complicit CDC was, or the government, let's say the government was, in advancing the narrative that the vaccine works. I mean, the effectiveness of the efficacy of the vaccine is not to be questioned, period. So there's kind of a, um, there's a twofold dilemma there. One is the origin. Was it at a Wuhan wet market or did it uh, originate from the Wuhan Institute of Virology? And the, the, the added nugget of information there, if it did, I mean, if it indeed did begin, if the genesis of the virus was at the Wuhan Virology Lab, was it funded by gain of research dollars paid for by the American taxpayer? We've never, ever explored the answer to that question. That's door number two. And behind door number three, how complicit was the FBI in conspiring with Twitter to censor certain information and um, amplify other information in the 2020 presidential election? Someone sent me an email over the weekend. Why wouldn't the Republicans worry about immigration? Why wouldn't the Republicans worry about Ukraine? Why wouldn't the Republicans worry about the debt ceiling? I think you can do both. I think we have an yeah, obligation. Those are policy things sure, that, that have that, to be addressed. Well, I mean, and we've made some adjustments to the way the House operates. And by the way, I've thought about your proposal here, and I think I've here, here's where I've landed on it. I think it's the election interference. I mean, the other things are monumentally important. Obviously, the origins of COVID, you know, what Biden and the family were up to, that's important. But the election interference just goes to the fabric of our country. And, and if, our, if the electorate doesn't trust the process and doesn't trust that the elections are free and fair, then a lot of the other stuff doesn't matter. Am I right? No, I mean, they think you're right. I mean, I, I'm not saying they're all equally as important. They're all vital. They're all very critical to the, once again, the, the clock's at 12. Yep. I have faith in the government. Okay, how much does your faith increase if Jordan chairs a committee and we compel Anthony Fauci or Hunter Biden or whomever appropriate, I don't know who they are. The, the point I'm trying to make is the Republicans have a responsibility to govern. There's no doubt about that. They made some pretty drastic decisions, excuse me, some pretty dramatic decisions happened toward the end of last week and into Saturday morning that will require a different operating of the House. Whether it is immigration, whether it is Ukraine, whether it is defense spending, whether it is whatever, whatever budgetary issue that comes up, we're going to deal with it differently now than we would have had McCarthy been given kind of carte blanche like Boehner and Ryan and Pelosi. 
Um, and the motion to vacate's a little bit, that doesn't matter to me as much. I mean, it really doesn't. Um, the things I'm most interested in is the reestablishment of the individual appropriation committees, um, the 72 hours for members to review legislation. I mean, that matters. But if you've got the budgeting process and you're aware of how the budget, or excuse me, how the bills are working themselves <laughs> through the chamber, you probably don't need 72 hours. You should be updated as uh, the period of time progresses. Um, once again, the rules committee's a big deal. The point I'm trying to make is we settled that. I mean, it was public. Some called it a clown show. Some called it a disaster, a fiasco. That's settled. I mean, the Republicans have a speaker. They have a new way the House will operate. Now, where do you go from there? I think you go directly to the investigative side of this. And I think you've got to make a determination. And, you know, the whole House Oversight Committee, I think, will probably investigate some of the Hunter Biden issues. But um, from what I've gathered, Jim Jordan really wants to know about the Biden crime family. I'm being a radio show host for a second <laughs> and the origin of COVID. I mean, that, that seems to me where, where he's not solely focused on, but laser focused on, on those two realities. Let's take a break. We'll come back, take a call on the other side. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Yeah, it was a terrible thing watching that last week, wasn't it? Those radical insurrectionists wanted to change all the rules and make them follow the law. The one they passed in 1974 that says they will have a appropriations bill signed and ready to go by April 15th, I believe it was. They had to have all 12 of them ready to go into effect on one October. So, yeah, that was that was real hard to do. And the 72-hour the thing, that's not for them. That's for us. That way we can read it and understand it and call our representatives and and either show approval or disapproval, and they can make changes on the floor as they go. You know, usually you watch C-SPAN, you see a, Representative standing in the well giving the speech, there ain't nobody there. They we got to see all four hundred and thirty five people in that chamber. You know, half of them were pissed off, but they had just lost their power. Pelosi had taken all those rules away. She let Congress people vote by proxy, not even be there, give their vote to somebody else during the COVID and she kept it going, you know, they didn't even go through committee. So yeah, those radicals really, really upset the government. But, you know, if if they want to get serious, you know, we talked about this before. Zero based budgeting. Every year you come up with zero and you justify your budget. Now that'll change the game. But it's it's you know, they keep hollering about the debt ceiling. You know, my my debt ceiling is probably hundred thousand dollars because I can't go over that because I don't wanna pay any more. So I stop at a hundred thousand dollars, let's say, but that doesn't mean I owe a hundred thousand dollars. But I don't want to go over a hundred thousand, and that's all the debt ceiling does. They keep saying, "Oh, you don't want to pay the bills." Now, these people borrow money to pay the interest on our debt. That's how ignorant they are. 
And, you know, half the people are, are fine with that. And, you know, and, and the way we get there is 72% of students failing or getting a D in math and English and graduating from high school. And that's how we get there. You were asking that question earlier. How do people go along with this? That's how we get there. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. I sound like a bit of a want when I say this, but but the little bit of studying academically that I've ever done in politics, but I, mean, I went to some course. I'm trying to think of where it was. It might have been one of these leadership South Carolina classes or whatever. Anyway, got asked to attend and went, and there was a, um, a course about government. They were talking about policy entrepreneurship. And policy entrepreneurship is encouraged because it's um, I mean it, it it's it's you thinking outside of the box. In other words, we got a problem, we've got an issue, we, we've got a policy solution we believe that'll work. So policy entrepreneurship has really been lacking in government because once again we've had this central. We talk about central government, you know, a top-down government, central planner, Washington D.C. Well, it's worse than that. Within the House, we've had a centralized system. What the speaker says goes. And, and what we did Sunday, or excuse me, um, last week, toward the end of last week and into, and into Saturday morning is we decentralized the way the House operates. It's still top-down. I mean, the Speaker still has enormous influence. But because um, Chip Roy convinced Kevin McCarthy, and I give Roy a lot of credit. I mean, I, I did last week, and I do again this week. And I want to say Ralph Norman will be with us at 7.05 tomorrow morning. And Ralph, you know, walked every leg of that journey with Chip Roy about spending. And this is all about spending. Please understand that all of these changes, the um, the reestablishing the normal way of appropriating in the House, the 72-hour window of time for you to review bills, the, the changes to the Rules Committee, everything we're talking about is, is debt. Chip Roy has a vision for the House. It is to basically be um, the... the the impediment to allow deficit spending. And and he got Kevin McCarthy to make a lot of concessions. To me, the concessions were very conservative in nature. Now, now some will argue that what I call policy entrepreneurship could turn into hostage-taking, and it could. I mean, it, there's no doubt about it. If, if one Republican abuses the privilege of the motion to vacate, I hope they don't. But if they do, yeah, it could become uh, political hostage-taking. But, but I go back to some of the um, – I just remember a class – and they were talking about policy entrepreneurship. And when you've got a speaker who basically says, I'm running the joint, and here's how it's going to be run, why would you be interested in policy entrepreneurship? Your policy doesn't see the light of day because the speaker runs the agenda. They run the calendar. They make the calls. Well, all of a sudden, today, Speaker McCarthy's power has been diluted, and the rank-and-file members of the House have a lot more influence in how that body's priorities are established, but once again, it's all about debt. This is all about spending, guys. There are a lot of political theatrics here. There are a lot of people trying to get on Fox News, but at the end of the day, Roy's ploy and Ralph Norman's ploy was spending. Deficit spending is what the Freedom Caucus is most interested in and motivated by. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone there? Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning. You're off to a good start, Ken. I'm sorry I missed the first part of your show, but uh, I'm really glad I uh, I heard uh, what uh, Joe had to say. And I think they have, need to send these guys to math camp. Every one of them ought to be able to recite the rule of 72 so that they can apply that to some of these things. 
uh, understanding uh, borrowing money to pay interest is an uh, act of desperation, and uh, we shouldn't be doing that. Just stop it, guys. And uh, the the Democrats aren't going to give up. They're in lockstep. They want to do. They're going to do that until the cows come home. This is the the uh, party that precipitated the Civil War, and uh, they've always been for inequality of somebody. And I don't think uh, they can. Uh, they they they've gone. They they're becoming more and more radicalized as we speak. And we have to learn how to combat this uh, balloting and everything. But uh, Joe's got an important point there. But these guys need to be sent to math camp. They just can't do the numbers, I don't believe. I really don't. They say they have college degrees, but I don't believe that they passed a single math uh, class. And uh, certainly not any uh, accounting class at all. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. And and remember, I mean – it, it, it may have been a little bit unusual the way we got here. And, and I don't want to speak for Ralph Norman, and I'd rather Ralph, I wish he were here today, but he's traveling today back to Washington, actually said he would, um, he'd be en route as we were on the air. But tomorrow at 7.05, you know, I'm making an assumption. Everything I've read, everything I've gathered convinces me that this is all about a goal to reduce federal spending. And if that's the goal and objective, then I'm 1,000% supportive of what they did. Um, and it's hard to understand. I mean, we kind of went to class last week for a couple of days. Rev said, I had no idea about the rules committee. I mean, when right. I said over the air, you know, a bill does not leave the speaker's office and, and go to the floor. It goes to the rules committee. Well, I mean, if the speaker has the rules committee fixed the way it needs to be fixed, then they sent a bill to the rules committee knowing that that bill is going to make its way to the floor. They've already got the votes. I mean, the majority. All, now, now, here's where you'll have some problems. And here's where the Republicans could have some some issues. Let's say that in some of this reducing spending and some of this, you know, ambition uh, of getting the federal budget back balanced in 10 or 12 years, and this is year one of that process, the Pentagon's budget is going to be on the chopping block because it's domestic discretionary spending. When you look at the language and the deal they made, I mean, once again, I'll read it verbatim. You ready? Fiscal year 2024 domestic discretionary spending won't be higher than it was in fiscal year 2022. Inevitably, inevitably, the defense budget is is a part of domestic discretionary spending, so it's going to be on the chopping block. Now, I am less hawkish than a lot of uh, fellow Republicans. I'm not concerned at all about a 20% cut to the defense budget. Now, now Republicans and some Democrats— they will make it look like we're sending our young men and women into harm's way, ill-equipped to fight the good fight. I don't buy that. I mean, I just don't buy that at all. And when it goes back to the appropriation process, if I'm Chip Roy, here's what I'm thinking about. When they start down the road of, of saying you are being insensitive to the needs of the American military, the budgeting process will allow. And once again, I said this morning, and I'll say it again, Every government legislation is a deal with somebody. The omnibus allows government to make a deal and you not know the details. Republicans have certain money interest, special interest. Democrats have certain special interests. They cater to whom? Those certain special interests. Well, all of a sudden, if we start appropriating via the 12 appropriation subcommittees, the deals they make with these special interests are going to be made public. Now, it's up to you to watch Seinfeld or not. 
And I get it. You're not going to follow it like, you know, uh, an aide or intern would or a full-time employee of the federal government would. But the information will be made available now. So when the government decides to spend a trillion dollars next year that they don't have, and we do it the way McCarthy and Roy have agreed to do it, you will have the ability to see what deal the government made with what sector of the economy your taxpayers being the funding, or excuse me, your taxpayer dollars being the funding mechanism. Let's go to the phone. Mike Page with Florence County GOP is on the line. Hey, Mike. Hey, Ken. Hey, Dave. Um, I wanted to talk to you just for a minute. Um, the Florence County Republican Party, we're uh, getting geared up so that we can start reorganizing the uh, Republican Party. Most people have no clue what reorg is for a county party. And that's where we start uh, at the precinct level, encourage people to come out and be a part of us and organize that. They're the voting um, person in that precinct at the county level. And that's going to be in March, but we're going to be starting and getting that process going. But also our monthly meeting is tomorrow evening, and we're going to have Diane Hardy speak about ESG, the Environmental Social Governance Stuff, and she is uh, very much on that. So if you've never heard of it or you know something about it, that's going to be at the McClinigan uh, Administrative Annex um, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. We'll have some food at 6.30, so I'd love for you to come out. But please come out and help the Florence County Republican Party organize itself so that we can turn the vote out and we can get some conservatives in our um, elected offices. All right, guys, just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Appreciate all the work that they're doing on behalf of. And it's kind of interesting. I, mean, I went on Twitter and Facebook, and I mean, there, there's, excuse me, there's certain Republican Facebook uh, participants and Twitter participants that I think a lot of. I mean, I know they're reasonable people. They're very involved in, in Republican politics. It just amazed me how few were supportive of what the 20 were doing. They bought into this Matt Gates, Lauren Bobbert, or Bobert, um, you know, being uh, grandstanding and, uh, you know, trying to write a book or host a radio show. And, yeah, I mean, I, I said it last week, and I'll stick to my guns here. There were certain people in that um, group of holdouts that weren't motivated by what Chip Roy was. But I think Ralph Norman was motivated by a sincere belief that we've got to get spending under control. And if we don't address the issue now, in other words, if you take the speaker at his word and the speaker comes and asks you for his support, and you say, Speaker, I really, I mean, the, the debt scares me. I mean, the deficit's a big deal. I mean, I, I'm in the business sector. I know how damaging debt can be if you don't keep it under control. And he says, hey, I, I'm with you. Don't worry about it. I got you. You vote for me, and I'm with you. You can't go that route, guys. I mean, your vote is what you've got. And when the Speaker needs, when he had a small majority, and he needed nearly every Republican on board, that's the time when you exercise um, that, that ability. And, and when people say, I heard it a lot, well, 20 Republicans are stopping, you know, 90% of Republicans from getting their way. That's the rules. You got to get a majority. It doesn't say you got 90% of your majority. I mean, it doesn't say you got 90% of your party. I mean, there's a number. You've got to get the majority of members voting for a declared candidate. That's the only way you become speaker. So for someone to say this was 20 Republicans holding hostage the entire party, no, they were exercising their right. There's a reason the founders said that here's how the speaker gets elected. And the speaker can't get elected until they have a majority of members voting for a declared candidate. So when Kevin McCarthy didn't have enough votes and he didn't really have a backup plan, 
he began to have to make real concessions. Had McCarthy had what he expected to have, a 30-40 vote majority, he probably could have not dealt with the Freedom Caucus. But the Freedom Caucus saw this as an opportunity. There, there were more of them than there were the advantage the Republicans had over the Democrats. Let's say there's 20 members of the Freedom Caucus, and let's say 10 of those are out for themselves and 10 are genuinely interested in debt, deficit spending. We've got to control our, our spending. When other than last week would they have the, the ability to influence the chamber as they did? I mean, if they'd voted for McCarthy in anticipation that just maybe he'll be a man of his word and do what he says, no. I mean, they, they had a chance to exercise their right as part of a governing body in disrupting the normalcy of how we've historically voted um, speakers. There's nothing wrong with that. To me, they did nothing at all wrong. Now, I wish Matt Gates had not been so about himself. I wish, you know, and I'll call some of these by name. I don't mind it. I mean, it, it, they're always in the middle of these controversies. Chip Roy's hardly ever in the middle of a controversy. Ralph Norman's not very much in the middle of a controversy. I mean, they, they have these hardline positions. I mean, they're, they're fiscal conservatives without question. You could call them, you know, uber fiscal conservatives. But they've been very consistent in their political lives. And I think they're rewarded last week, unique moment in time, unique opportunity. And they got a lot of what they asked for, which I think is a good thing for the American people. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. We've, um, I don't know if we've beaten that dead horse enough because it's a big story. Love to hear what you have to say about, would you rather, okay, let's do this. Would you rather the, the House Republicans make as a priority the spending, because ultimately that's a bigger deal, right? Or would you rather the House, I mean, there's a legislative priority, it looks to me like, and it's all about spending. I mean, this is all about... The conservative Republicans finally found an opportunity to cash their chits in in a big way. In other words, they don't have the votes to curtail spending. They don't have the votes to balance the budget. They just don't. I mean, there are a lot of Republicans who don't want... In fact, um, French Hill, Republican from Arkansas. I don't know if you saw him give a speech or not. Very eloquent. I mean, if your name is French Hill from Arkansas... <laughs> You better be eloquent, right? <laughs> and he's a Republican, but he held up a blank sheet of paper. Rev sees what I'm doing here. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what this is? This is the number of constituents I have in my district in Arkansas that have asked me to curtail spending, that have asked me to cut spending. And then he takes a sheet of paper and he turns it over and it's got a list of them. Um, he said, here are the requests that I've had. And that's really where we are. We become accustomed to a certain degree of government, a certain degree of... um. Uh, services and you know do we want to cut those services now i believe that that's an insane argument but french hills in washington and washington doesn't operate like the rest of the world i think there's 20 percent spending cuts across the board in a nanosecond and nobody get by how does how does um, elon musk do what he did at twitter i mean do you really believe the government's run as efficiently as twitter i mean elon musk cuts out what 70 percent of the employees I mean, he's done away with about 40% of the um, office space they were leasing. They own some, lease others. So he's, he's cut out 40% of all leases. He's gotten rid of 70 employees. And I mean, if I press send, my tweet goes out. We believe the government can't do with 20 or 25 or 30. Of course it can. It absolutely can. But, but it's coming, guys. The first Republican that you hear complain about cutting spending will be somebody arguing 
that we're sending our men and women into harm's way without being careful about or considering what cuts to discretionary domestic spending, which defense is a part of. Well, let's hash it out. And I keep going back. I mean, you know, I don't know if you're hearing me as clearly as, as what I think you need to on this, because once again, what, what is government spending? Government spending is a deal that the government makes on your behalf with, with an entity or enterprise it deems worthy. Whether it's a tax cut, an appropriation, doesn't matter what it is. I mean, if we're signing a defense contract with Honeywell, the government believes that's in the country's best interest to pay Honeywell this much money to do this. If the liberal Democrats agree to fund Medicaid or, or um, another you know, non-means-tested welfare program at X number of dollars, they made a deal with their constituency. They believe that many people need help. So the government, Republicans believe that that many rockets need to be built or that many jets need to be built. The Democrats believe that many people need help. Those are deals. And historically, since what, 19, oh, it's probably been 2000, before 9-11, 97, I think's the year. I mean, we budgeted that. And if the Democrats wanted to make a deal with the uh, with the left behind, with the downtrodden, with those who didn't have any assets or resources, you knew about the deal. And we knew that there was a line item. And we spent this much money to help people that need help. You decide whether they need help or not. There was another line item. We're paying Honeywell this much, Raytheon this much, Boeing this much. There was a line item. And it had been vetted. It had been argued, debated. We, we agree and disagree. There's a compromise. You want to spend, you know, um, $875 billion on defense. I want to spend $500. We end up spending $625 billion. We've not done that. I mean, in the, in the recent omnibus bill, we spent, what, 800 and some odd, nearly $900 billion in defense spending. Who knows where that money's going? I mean, did, did the House Defense Appropriations Committee meet and discuss about the money? I mean, we're sending $45 billion in foreign aid to Ukraine. To do what? I mean, if I wanted to know the answer to that, that'd be a good question. Um, Freehold, let's do this. I got you, You're ready for an assignment? Um, let's reach out to Senator Graham's office, be very respectful, and, and, and ask, we want to know what was included in the nearly $900 billion spending within the omnibus bill, and we want to know, has anybody line-itemed, identified exactly where the $45 billion excess dollars in the omnibus bill to help Ukraine. I mean, that's pretty vague, isn't it? $45 billion yeah. to aid and assist Ukraine. In what way? I mean, what are we doing? Did you know they prohibited any spending from being spent on securing the southern border? I mean, there was specific language. You know where that language came from? The speaker. You know why the speaker was able to do that? Because she had stacked the rules committee. And if you're on the rules committee and, and, and just said, no, you can't put specific language to disallow. I mean, it was prohibited. I mean, there was prohibitive language in the legislation that disallowed any money from being spent on the southern border, but 45 more billion dollars made its way to Ukraine. How do we believe we can continue as a nation under the, uh, the, the guise of that being how we're going to, to budget? So good day for the conservatives. Good day for our budget hawks. Probably not such a good day for defense hawks, but Defense spending doesn't need to be eight hundred ninety or nine hundred billion dollars. And I understand what we're talking about as far as it relates to the House, but Democrats still control the Senate and the presidency. So how much difference does this really make? Well, I mean, it makes a lot of difference because if you don't appropriate, they can't approve. I mean, the Senate can't spend without the House blessing it. I mean, you got a House vote and a Senate vote. Remember? I mean, it, 
we've always said the Republicans can't enact an agenda because they don't have a majority in the Senate and they don't have control of the White House. But what the Republicans can do is refuse to put forth a budget. I mean, if they, they can they can send the Senate a budget, a balanced budget, with about 12%. Well, I mean, let's go back to the language. So, so they don't have to negotiate with the Republicans to get anything. Well, I mean, here's, here's, the, here's the negotiating. If the, if the House puts together a budget, and once again, the language says that McCarthy agreed that fiscal year 2024 domestic discretionary spending will not be higher than fiscal year 2022. The Senate is not going to sign up for that. I mean, I can assure you, if McCarthy and the Republicans, now will all moderate Republicans vote for this? I don't know. I mean, there's some Republicans in the House that, that represent districts won by Joe Biden. They're going to be nervous about this. But, but if indeed the Republicans can rally and can win support and pass a budget that does not exceed fiscal year 2022, if it gets to the Senate, there's no way it passes. But the Senate can't mark up the, if the Senate marks up the bill and it exceeds spending of 2022, it's got to come back to the House. So the House has a lot, I mean, you, you can't enact an agenda, but you can impede what the, what the Senate and, and, and White House are trying to do. And that's why it's such a big deal. And, you know, you'll hear the media begin crying and moaning and complaining about everything the House Republicans are doing because, once again, they want to address spending. And when you address spending, you address programs. When you address programs, you address this social entitlement that Democrats so passionately believe in. And I just think that's where we're headed. Once again, it is not the enacting of an agenda by the Republicans, but rather spending bills that curtail spending. The Democrats, and, and, and let's be honest, a lot of Republicans aren't going to be very fond. I mean, I've already heard two Republicans yesterday on television say, and I quote, I'm just concerned about the cuts to military, the cuts to, to the defense budget. And they don't say it about the Pentagon. They say our men and women in uniform. I mean, that's going to be some of the dog whistle, our men and women in uniform. Will McCarthy hold stand, or excuse me, will Chip Roy hold firm and basically, you know, throw his weight around with these changes he's made to the Rules Committee? I don't know. I think he will because I think they're that serious about reducing federal spending. Let's go to the phone. Sam at Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, I have a, a, a question in, well, first comment. Um, I saw an interview with uh, J.D. Vance. I believe it was over the weekend. I think Hannity had him on and asked him if he uh, what had he noticed any changes uh, about Washington. And basically what he said was, well, he says, we got swore in, and then we went on a three-week recess. So the Senate is on a three-week recess, as I understand it. And uh, also, are we going to have the same kind of battle uh, trying to get this rules package passed? Because won't the Democrats also uh, have a vote on that rules rules package going forward? I'll get off the phone and listen to your response. They will, but the, from what I've gathered, and I don't know this to be true, I'm, I'm repeating things I've heard, and I'll ask Ralph this tomorrow when he comes on. From what I've gathered, every Republican agreed to go along with the changes made to the Rules Committee. That was part of the deal. If you're Chip Roy, and you make a deal with the speaker, and the speaker says, yes, I'll go along with that. Chip Roy's got to believe the speaker can bring everybody that voted for him along. So, so I mean, you know, I'm not Chip Roy. I'm not Ralph Norman, but they've been around the block. So when the speaker makes that commitment that I'll make the changes, I'll meet your concession, or I'll give you the concession on rules committee, that they're not just going to take him at that word. 
they, they've got to get a commitment from McCarthy that every member, I mean, every member of the Republican Party is going to be in, in agreement. What we've got the majority by slim margin, but but yeah, that that's a very valid question. Just because McCarthy says I'll agree to the changes doesn't mean the the entirety of the Republican um, the Republican majority goes along with it. But from what I've gathered, that was part of the deal. When 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 McCarthy said I'll do it, Roy said, "Well, I need I need to know that you know we've got enough votes within the caucus." And I think McCarthy, McCarthy went back to the caucus and all agreed to support. And I don't want to call it the Roy plan because others were involved in that. But Chip Roy was the guy that pushed for many of these changes. I mean, to me, he has somewhat of a, um, I mean, I think the National Review called it a compelling vision for how how the House should operate. And it's more of a, um, I mean, it really and truly, it dilutes the, the, the power of the Speaker and it gives more influence to the rank and file membership. It's a um, kind of a decentralizing of even the uh, the Republican majority in the House of Representatives. Let's go to the phone. Here is Rujan. Good morning, Rujan. Good morning, guys, and Happy New Year. Same to you. Last year. Hey, listen, listen, to use a couple of, you know, military term and a firefighter term, the best way to uh, to, to stop a bleed is to cut it off. Turn your turn, put a tourniquet on it, and it stops bleeding. And the best way to put out a fire is take away its fuel, and that's exactly what... Uh, with, uh, uh, what they're doing, I, I love it. Um, it's going to choke off a lot of this stuff, a lot of this uh, excess bleeding, um, and all, some of this artificial uh, propping up of the economy, and that's what we need to do. I, I love it. I love it. I, I'm all for it. And, uh, but uh, let Jim Jordan go, go on and be a, a bulldog. Let him do what he needs to do, and uh, he'll take care of everything. He'll take care of his part anyway. Thank you, Rude John. Appreciate that. Hope so. And, and that was a lot of the concern when, 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 I mean, it's not that Jordan's not popular. Jordan's very popular uh, within the, especially conservative circles within the Republican Party. But, but a lot of people felt that if Jordan had this responsibility as speaker, I said it last week, and I remember saying it, I don't want Jordan to be speaker. I think you're underutilizing his talents. Who wants to be the cat herder? I mean, I'm telling you, McCarthy's an ambitious guy. He's an arrogant guy. I mean, that's um, I mean, that's evident by moving his, you know, moving into the speaker's office before being elected speaker. I mean, that really and truly is like, wow, dude, really? Uh, <laughs> be a little more humble than that, and you'll, you know, humility will get you, uh, you know, far ways in the world unless you're in Washington, I guess. And being arrogant kind of is um is the normal mode of operation. But but I go back to Jordan. I think Jordan's dynamic skill is cross examination. And I think Jordan chairing the judiciary, whether we're dealing with the Biden family or whether we're dealing with the FBI, I think the um, the origin of the vaccine will probably be in the oversight committee. I don't know that. I would imagine that. But but I'd rather Jim Jordan not be um, consumed by the responsibilities of being a speaker. The, the speakership is a very prestigious honor, but it's probably as difficult a job as there is in politics at the state level. At the national level, I mean, being speaker is hard. I mean, it really and truly is um, because, once again, you've got all these unique interests, all these unique personalities, all these unique beliefs and, and ideologies, and you've got to try and merge them in some way, shape, or form in a common direction. And I just don't think Jim Jordan was best utilized as a Republican doing that job. I think he's far better getting to the bottom of what the FBI did what Dr. Fauci knew, what Joe Biden's responsible for, 
I mean, I just think Biden on our team, he's the best cross-examiner we got. I mean, he's a, a tenacious, uh, bulldogish kind of personality. Um, he revels in that confrontation. I think he wakes up every day a little bit like Trump, trying to find somebody to argue with. I think he really enjoys that. I think the tougher, the more intense, the more he shines. And um, so, yes, uh, they're, they're under, under – I never wanted Georgia to be speaker. I mean, there were some out there saying this would be a real, you know, sea change in, in, in the way or the direction of the Republican Party. Yeah, but you don't have the right guy. We probably have the right guy as our speaker. He probably made more concessions than even he's comfortable with, but it is what it is. But now we've got a, a house that is more in a line with its base. I mean, let's be honest. It's not where the base is, but but the, the concessions get the house more in line with the voting base. And I'm talking about budgeting and, and deficit spending and all these other sorts of things. Plus, you're going to have your rock star chairing the committee that is largely going to be responsible for putting Fauci, Biden, and James Robinson to the FBI. I mean, remember those three names. I doubt Fauci ever appears. Ah, he's pretty arrogant. He may think he can outsmart everybody, and that'd be to his disadvantage. But because um, Fauci yesterday said, uh, he was asked a question about, you know, the, the heart attack of the football player, and he basically said, under no circumstance could that have been um, the case. I mean, he's that sure of everything he believes in. Anybody that's that sure of everything they believe in, or I mean, stay away. I mean, really and truly, those people are dangerous. Um, I understand being sure and being confident and having a belief that, you know, this is the right thing to do. But for somebody to be that sure and, and, and just dismiss anybody that questions their actions, their motives, you know, whether they could have been right or wrong. I mean, Fauci, I mean, I get it. You're, you're, you know, you know your motivation. I mean, you, you know, in your heart and soul, you know what motivated you to do X, Y, or Z. And I, and I would be very defensive if someone questioned my motivation. But, but to believe you're always right, that nobody has to question. In other words, Dr. Fauci, we think you were motivated by the right things, but you were wrong. I mean, you were wrong when you said this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. You were wrong when you said the vaccine um, is, is effective. The vaccine is durable. I mean, you were wrong. Maybe you were well-intended. M- maybe you were, um, m- maybe maybe you had information that led you to believe those things were the case. They weren't, and you were wrong. But he refuses to accept any responsibility, not for just intent, but but whether or not factually he was right he is or wrong. Oh, yeah. He's science. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, when I hear the 15th round, I think Ollie Frazier. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. when, you, when you're my age, right. I think Ollie Frazier won two or three. But no, it was a speaker's battle um, concluded early Saturday morning in round 15. Kevin McCarthy becomes the, the most recent Republican speaker of the House. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us. Jared, good morning. How are you? I was trying to think if that was the number of rounds it took Rocky in the sequel. <laughs> there, there you I go. I know Rocky loses in the first one, but in the sequel, does it take the, does it go to distance? I, I just remember the guy's distance. name was Clubber Lang. Am I right? Mr. T, if I'm not mistaken, was, uh, yeah. was Clubber Lang in, in Rocky too. Hey, we nearly had a confrontation on the floor of the house. <laughs> How about um, that? Yeah. Yeah, but they wanted it. You know, they, they, they looked aggressive until they had a chance to get aggressive. They're like, well, please. I'll tell you. Well, I mean, it shows sort of how heated it got because that was supposed to be the vote that they thought everything was settled and then it came down to Matt Gates and he voted president and that brought it all down and, and there was a lot of anger at Matt Gates. There's been some anger at Matt Gates throughout this process, by the way, but 
it's notable the uh, the the congressman who was uh, sort of held back there was um, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, which is a committee that, that Gates uh, sits on and would like a more prominent role on. And so we'll see if that happens. But Jared, um, it seems some of the concessions yes, made center around spending. Is that a fair? I mean, that that's a summation. But is that fair? Um, it's fair, and I would add to that the process by which spending is handled. Um, what do I mean by that? You're right. There's a concession made on spending in the sense that now sort of the baseline spending figures that the House is going to start with would reduce spending. They would bring the, the, the baseline sort of numbers down to what they were a couple of years ago. So, yes, what also was included in that is the way in which spending bills are now handled, um, the, the type of majorities that say – a tax increase would need. And the idea that now written into this rules package is that a debt limit increase, which is something that's going to have to be voted on in the next couple of months, would have to be accompanied by these types of spending cuts. Um, And listen, that's going to be challenging um, because it's not as if when you talk about cutting spending or or bringing spending caps down to uh, what they were a couple of years ago, you have unanimous support from Republicans. Uh, Spending is you know what makes up 55% of discretionary spending? The U.S. military. Um, and so does that mean that you're going to cut defense spending by 4 or 5%? Well, that's not going to get a lot of support, even amongst Republicans, right? And so that's going to be kind of the challenges that this rules package, I think, presents now moving forward for uh, for this Republican majority. Jared, you're, you're up close and personal. I'm making a judgment from before, but it seems to me that amongst the holdouts, there was some sincerity with Roy and a few of the others, yes. and then there was I, these grandstanders right. and people who were seeking right. attention. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to go into the, the, the uh, yeah, I don't want to say that it was seeking attention or not. I think you were right that especially when you, and, and listen, I had some conversations with Chip Roy, and he was not one of these holdouts who was like, it's never going to be Kevin McCarthy ever under any circumstances ever, right? That wasn't his, his view. Um, his view was, listen, I want to get some changes here to the way that the House of Representatives operates, and he did negotiate, it seems, in good faith and was able to win some of those concessions. Um, again, though, some of these concessions in the rules package are going to present some challenges for Kevin McCarthy and his leadership team uh, over the next uh, two years and, and really over the next couple of months here as some of these spending issues come to a head. Um, because there is going to have to be, at some point, um, some consensus, not just amongst themselves, but with Democrats in the Senate with Republicans in the Senate um, who have had a very different view on some of the tactics here that House Republicans have put forward. Um, there was a lot said about House, uh, excuse me, about Senate Republicans, right? You heard floor speeches where Republicans said, well, Kevin McCarthy's not Mitch McConnell, and, like, they're going to have to work together, right? And so um, I am curious to see sort of how quickly hatchets are buried here over the next couple of weeks. But there's no denying the reality that because the the, the House Freedom Caucus scored, I guess, or secured additional seats on the Mm -hmm. Rules Committee, the Speaker's power has been diluted. Well, it's been diluted anyway, regardless of if they're on the, the, the Rules Committee or not. I mean, obviously, you talk about the rule that, that allows any single member here to, to start the process of vacating the chair, of, of removing a speaker. That's significant. That is not something that, that Nancy Pelosi had to deal with. It is something that undid uh, John Boehner several years ago. And so, listen, that's going to be something that's sort of always hanging over the, the head of, uh, 
uh, of uh, Kevin McCarthy here. Um, I will be interested in some of the committee makeup stuff because that's not in the rules committee. Uh, excuse me, in the rules package. Um, it does sound like there was an agreement made specifically to the rules committee that there would be, uh, I'll, I'll argue, an outsized role of the House Freedom Caucus on the rules committee because they do not make up um, more than about 40 members in the House Republican Conference. And it seems like they're going to proportionally have a few more seats there in the Rules Committee, which is important. That's a way station for every piece of legislation. There had been talk that other members wanted some some choice seating and some choice committee uh, assignments on subcommittees and things like that, including Matt Gates. That's actually decided by the Republican Steering Committee and in many ways uh, decided by the Republican chairmen themselves. Um and I don't know if they're going to be in a, a giving mood after everything that's gone through. And so that's going to be interesting to see moving forward is what is the makeup of these committees? Who gets those seats? Which Freedom Caucus members gets these seats? Remember, there were there, there's about 40, 45 Freedom Caucus members. They didn't all oppose Kevin McCarthy, right? There were 20 holdouts. So there are Freedom Caucus members who did not oppose Kevin McCarthy. Maybe they're rewarded for that, and, and some of these others aren't. It'll be interesting to see what the makeup looks like. I think you're absolutely right about that. My last question will be respectful of your time. The church committee. I mean, I'm a Southern Baptist from mm-hmm. the South, and a pulpit committee is when a pastor left, yeah, and he went found a, they're not a new one. They're not about religion. Yeah, here. I'm sure uh, they are, but they made it a pastor <laughs> before this is all over with. What exactly is the church committee? Um, well, I don't think it's going to be named the church. The church was named after a senator in the 1970s. Correct. Um, so, um, but it's an investigative committee, am I right? It was an investigative committee that was born sort of out of the 1970s, out of Watergate, out of uh, this mistrust of the FBI and, and the CIA, and, and it investigated essentially the politicization and the weaponization and the, the illegal things that, that the FBI, the CIA, some of these clandestine services were doing. That is now going to be a subcommittee that's sort of overseen by the Judiciary Committee. So this will be overseen largely by Jim Jordan. Uh, And it is a promise that they are going to have a select committee, a special committee within the House that's going to investigate the FBI and uh, its role in, in, um, you know, ordering big tech or or talking to big tech companies, social media companies, its role in uh, potentially some of the Russia investigation stuff. Um, And it seems like it's going to be well funded as well. That was part of the rules committee. So I don't know what they're ultimately going to call it, uh, but you're right. It is sort of born out of the church committee. And it is going to be a subcommittee, essentially, of the Judiciary Committee. It, it is essentially setting up now a major investigative arm here for Jim Jordan and uh, the Judiciary Committee. Jerry, very well explained. Appreciate your time. And I, I would predict that the um, the next session will be good for talk radio, conservative talk radio in particular. <laughs> I think you're going to be fine. <laughs> Thank you, Jared. Appreciate your time. All right. Guy's so good at bringing us up to speed, and and, and once again, I, I, he's inside the belly of the beast, so to speak. I say that a lot, but he's in he's in DC DC up close well, and he personal. Said he was talking to Chip Roy. Yeah, and, and the church committee is not the church committee. It's not a pulpit committee. <laughs> it was named, but but once again, I explained it earlier to me. I mean, my interpretation understanding is um, it's a committee that can go after anything. I mean, it has full investigative authority, and I think one of the uh, things Jared said that I hadn't heard is that it's going to be funded. I mean, sometimes you can put a committee in place, but if you don't have any money to pay people to do the work, the investigative work necessary, hey, a, a senator's not going to do the investigative work. I mean, you got to go out and get experts, forensic experts, accounting experts, um, private investigators. Somebody has to pay those. And so, so if you're forming a, you know, an investigative committee and you're funding it to the degree that it can do the necessary work, you know, somebody texted me a second ago and, and asked what one of the best questions I've thought about. Let's say we find out that indeed Joe knew 
or Fauci knew or James Robinson did, um, you know, in the name of government suppress free speech. What happens? I mean, I think there's suspicions running wild. I mean, I am highly suspicious about the relationship between Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. I'm talking about father and son. I'm talking about business and, and influence peddling. I am highly suspicious that Joe Biden has not told us the truth. I am highly suspicious about the activities between Twitter and the FBI. I am as suspicious about Fauci and the Wuhan virology lab or, or the relationship CDC has with, with Pfizer. I can't prove anything. But if we have an investigative committee that is staffed and funded and does find out uh, answers to some of these questions, what happens to these people who violated the American trust? 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Hey, Jeff. Jeff, you, you're right. Uh, when when they start investigating Operation Warp Speed, which happened in in 2000, uh, early 2000, and they go after Redfield. You mean 2020, not those, 20, not 2000, 2020. Yeah, sorry, you're right. You're right. I, it, you're right. It was during the Trump administration. That won't be the last mistake that. you make in your discipline. But continue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no. You're right. But but let's, you know, that, that will be all, you know, they'll pull all those Trump administration people in. They're all in jail. They'll, be, they'll get to the bottom <laughs> of it. They're all in right? jail. You can't bring yeah. them. They're all in prison. Yeah. If you, well, I mean, you know, it is true. A lot of his people end up in prison. I don't know why. <laughs> but, he does. Um, you know, I, I, I did want to talk to you, you know, about the budget and uh, in, in the, uh, the tightening of the belt. Um, you know, as far as Congress goes, the concessions, Chip Roy's like, we're going to jump back to this uh, spending levels. Um, you, you know, Jer, your, your guest just said it, 50% is spent on military. We don't see that really getting cut, do we? Uh, if you're going to return, if, if we're going to balance the budget, we're going to have to cut defense spending. Right. So, because there's not enough money coming in. Correct. So, we're not going to, so, so, you know, there's one of two ways you can balance the budget. You can raise revenue, which... We know that there was a tax cut package passed that led to huge deficit spending, a huge deficit in the federal um, ledger, right? Correct. And we know where that package ended up giving tax cuts, right? Correct. Do you think, are you aware that the average tax on people making under $75,000 is going up? It always does. I mean, the, 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 the working man or woman never gets a tax break. I mean, there's a, there's a shifting of the tax burden from, from taxes to fees or, or some other creative way the government confiscates a certain percentage of the American wealth. And I've said it before on the air, Jeff, I'm not cutting Trump any slack. I mean, I think the, the, the tax cuts were too corporate-weighted. Um, I don't know if you were listening the other day, but I blamed a lot of the problems with our deficit today on the, the deficit spending. Did Jeff hang up? Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, the, um, the deficit spending when, during the Bush administration was a combination of the, the war in Iraq, the tax cuts and the, the, the Medicare prescription benefits. I mean, if you look at the trajectory of debt, I mean, I've never, ever, I don't think I have, if I have, I apologize. I've never blamed the Democrats exclusively for the debt the country's incurred. Once again, I think the Bush tax cuts were too corporate weighted. 
I think one of the most, I think one of the biggest mistakes a conservative president or professing conservative president has ever made is cutting taxes, simultaneously going to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and including the Medicare prescription benefit. I mean, that was irresponsible. That was financially irresponsible. So when you look at the debt, I mean, I think Democrats are more to blame for the debt, but I don't think they're all to blame by any stretch of the imagination. And I said this morning, and I'll say again, there's no way we cut domestic discretionary spending without putting the Pentagon's budget on the chopping block. I am one of the few Republicans who will say publicly, I think we spend too much money on defense. I think the, the military-industrial complex has too much influence over the, um, the way we govern ourselves. I believe that American imperialism can't be afforded but for so much longer in, in nation-building and, and, and you know, regime changes and all these other sorts of things. I know Jeff's back on the phone, but Frio, don't want to get too far behind. I want to make sure we're giving him all the time he needs. Let's take a break, come back, and we'll let Jeff continue um, because Jeff is really good for this radio show. And I mean that sincerely, despite the people that text me saying, hang up on him. <laughs> Take a break. <laughs> Back in a minute. Thanks Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Let's go to Jeff or back to Jeff. We lost him for a second. Jeff, the floor is yours. Hey, uh, yes. Thanks. I, I know you, you've talked about military spending and, and, um, uh, realize that, uh, you know, there's a lot of special interest pork built into it. Um, but to get in, and I, I, completely honestly agree with you um, on that. Um, but to get back to what I was saying about, you know, when you look at the Trump tax cuts, when we talk about how, how do the Republicans plan to address the spending and the deficit, if you go back to the Trump tax cuts, it, you, I mean, I think you could characterize it, and I, I believe you would if you were uh, being honest, that it was a tax cut for the rich and corporations, correct? It was heavily weighted that way. I don't think it was all about that, but but even when they pass it, I thought they could have done a better job for Main Street. Yeah, it, it left Main Street out. I mean, 100%. Um, your tax, it, it, people who make under, under 75000 individually, are going to see their tax bill rise in the next three years. And it is all part of that one package plan that was passed in 2017. Um, you know, so it's, it's you know, it, corporations saw their tax rates reduced. Um, people who earn money, not through wages, saw their tax bill reduced. And America, Main Street, will see their taxes rising um, now. Okay, that is out of, they, every politician does this. They, they put these uh, budget packages and tax cuts forward. They put sunsets and they uh, scale them to uh, come into effect when they're out of office, possibly, so they don't have to deal with the repercussions. They don't have to pay the piper, right? The next guy does. Um, unfortunately, you know, COVID hit and it exacerbated that income tax shortfall that we're seeing. And if you want to see why the deficit rose so high under Trump, he had to spend the money to fight COVID. Uh, you know, we can debate on whether that was real or not, but he uh, he did what would needed to be done, and it caused the deficit to balloon. The problem is, in 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 Senator Scott from Florida, um, he said the quiet part out loud. They're going to shut down the federal government to put austerity measures in place for Social Security and and Medicare. And you, do you see that? Yeah, and I'll be honest, Jeff, I don't know the alternative. 
Is there another way to get the budget under control without doing something to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid? Would, would rolling back the tax cuts on corporations? I see, answer? but that's where you and I fundamentally disagree. I don't think well, I, the problem is the amount of money coming in. I think the amount of money is, is going out. I mean, I, I think there's, when I look at revenues generated by tax receipts, I mean, it increases every year. I mean, the government has enough money to meet its obligations if it showed some degree of fiscal restraint. See, and that, that's where you and I would probably fundamentally have a disagreement. You, you would probably believe that they need more revenue. I think they need to do a better job of cutting spending. Well, so, so it's, uh, there, there, there's two sides to this, right? Two ways to do it. Cut spending and raise revenue. If you run a business and you want to expand or, or you want to do something, you know what you have to do. You have to sell more. You have to raise revenue. Okay. And so we had a revenue stream that was coming in and it was cut. And those cuts went to the top 1% in corporations in the U.S. You just said it, right? Oh, I don't disagree with that. But I, th- I think, yeah, I think corporate America was taken. Corporate America has been too taken care of in our recent tax proposals proposals by both Republicans and Democrats. I mean, how, how could you look at, and, and you know, uh, I'm not, how could you look at corporate profits under COVID soaring to record levels? Re- levels not seen. And when you break it down, and, and I, you, you probably don't follow Katie Porter. You probably don't see her whiteboard where she lays out like how much is raw material cost, how much is labor cost in the last two years and how much is actual profit that Americans have been paying. Have you seen that? I've seen some of that. Yeah. I mean, she's greedy capitalism. Well, I mean, you know, again, you you call it what you want. I mean, it is, I mean, there's a certain degree of greed in capitalism, but but you would agree the economic theory capitalism is going to always have a certain degree of, of greed. But would two times agreed under an economic shutdown be, has it ever happened before? Well, what, but but, are you saying the Republicans are responsible for that? Well, I'm saying some of the tax code is responsible for that, but no, I'm not saying Republicans are responsible for it. Business is business. They're out to make money. That's their mandate. You know, make as much profit as you can. But Jeff, that, hey, Jeff we, time, we can't float this break. Hard break, top of the hour. Always love it when you call. Please call. Every day, but call earlier so other calls can, you know, take you to task. Back in a minute. <laughs> I pulled in the Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. I just need some place where I can leave my head. Hey, mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand No was all he said Take a load off, Fanny Take a load for free Take a load off, Fanny And you put the load right on Picked up my bag I went looking for a place to hide When I saw Carmen and the devil Walking side by side I said, hey Carmen Come on, let's go downtown She said, 
Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Little Woodstock, right? Little, yeah. Little, the band. Riff says he's got a picture with Robbie Robinson. I don't know if he does or not. <laughs> he says that for ten years, but I he know. scoured his offices. I hadn't been able to find, find, find it. Uh, the picture. I did we'll, meet him one time. Want to go back real quick to what Jeff said? I'm um, talking about money in, money out. I mean, the, the 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 liberal Democrat would believe that the problem's always we need more money. The conservative Republican would say the problem is we're spending too much money. All I can say is in fiscal year 2012, revenue was $2.45 trillion. In fiscal year 2021, excuse me, 2022, 10 years later, revenue is $4.25 trillion. So the government is collecting roughly $2 trillion more in revenue than it was 10 years ago. And it's not enough. That's an absurd amount of money. So every year, the American taxpayer gives our congression, excuse me, well, I mean, Congress is appropriators. It gives the government over $4 trillion to spend, and they're spending a trillion they don't have. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So Biden's been president for two years now, and up until just now, he's had a Congress that would give him just about anything he wanted. Um, so... What did he give us? He gave us Walmart store brand eggs that are in excess of $5 a dozen. Milk that's in excess of $3 a gallon. That's all store brand uh, bottom-of-the-barrel stuff. Ground beef that's in excess of $4 a pound. And, and Ken, I know that a lot of y'all don't pay attention to the baby formula, and luckily we've been able to wean my son off of it as he's getting my youngest off of it. Good. But, Ken, that shortage and that crisis of baby formula is just as bad now as it was a year ago. Um, so so Jeff can call in and use all these fancy words and talk about all these people he follows, but Biden can't even feed our children. Biden is a complete failure um, as far as those things goes. He had everything he wanted given to him, but he couldn't accomplish that. I, I know that when President Trump was president, I didn't have to worry about my first son finding the formula for him. I know that if my wife and I wanted to cook hamburgers, we didn't have to think about how much it cost. So, Jeff, I tell you what, Jeff, you meet me at 230 North Beltline on aisle L1, the baby formula aisle, and you can tell me whatever you want to tell me about Joe Biden. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I mean, Jim, appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Well, I want to go down this road just a bit. Stick with me for a second. Um, this is the, you can bet your ass on this section of the show. You ready? <laughs> a, a lot of people aren't affected by immigration. I mean, they really and truly aren't. I mean, if you live in a border town, a border city, a border state, I mean, obviously it has a dramatic effect on how you live your life. I, I hear from the cattle farmers. I read about the cattle farmers who find illegal aliens living in some of their houses on their ranches and farms, and they're, you know, they're armed at all times. They're nervous about having cash money on them. But, but that doesn't affect the masses, right? I mean, we're talking about a rules committee. How many people in America today know there's been a change made to the rules committee? None. 
I mean, it'd be less than 1%. How many people even have heard of the rules well, committee? You're, you're pretty astute. Until last week, you said, I don't know anything I, about a no, rules committee. I, I mean, I, I'm unique. I'm not unique in any other way, except I've held office and I had to deal with, with some of those sorts of things in, um, in the Senate, the Rules Committee, House Committee. Um, and now we're talking about the federal government. But stick with me for a second, because uh, what Jim's talking about is exactly right. And, and you can read, guys, as much as you'd like. And you can blame Republicans for this and Democrats for that. And you can blame the administration for something else. And some believe Trump caused all this and others believe Biden is to blame. But but here's the you can bet your sweet ass answer to all of this. Democracies die in inflation. Populist movements gain enormous momentum and become a threat to the governance of an establishment when inflation is as rampant as it is. You know why? Everybody doesn't have a cattle ranch on a border town. Everybody's not nervous about illegal immigration. Everybody's not bothered uh, about a lot of, but, but everybody's affected by inflation. Everybody eats. The majority of people drive. Everybody buys stuff every day to some degree. Some buy a lot more than others because they've got a lot more money than others. But, but if you read history, and you want to watch a democracy die in some sort of quasi-revolution, inflation is normally at the middle of it. I mean, it really and truly, liberty, freedom uh, are affected directly by inflation. You have less economic freedom. You have less personal liberties when you don't have as much money. And, and when eggs are three times as much as they were, and hamburgers twice as much, I'm not talking about caviar and, um, and cowboy T-bones. I'm talking about, you know, things that normal, regular, working-class people expect to be able to afford without having to worry about, you know, am I going to make it to the next paycheck? That creates civil unrest. That creates revolutionary mindsets. That creates disruption in government. And that's how democracies end. I'm sorry. I mean, I know this is getting out there, but this is what we're talking about. And when you've got this clock on the wall, and at 12 noon means I trust government to do right nearly every time. And that, that hand begins to move. And you begin to trust government a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. And you get to about 6 o'clock in the evening. And that's the point in which, you know, I don't know if I trust government to do it or not. Maybe I need to take action. Maybe I need to do some things on my own. Uh, maybe I need to become a little bit ungovernable. Remember I said a little bit ungovernable. And then that clock content or the hand continues to move. And sooner or later, you get to a place where people are so distrusting of government, so, so consumed by their own existence that they, they, they kind of shift into survival mode. And so, I mean, the history is full of this. I mean, if you look at the great revolutions in civilization's history, I mean, it, it, inflation's at the center of all of this. Can I afford to provide my, for my family or not? How much money am I going to have once I pay my bills? And, and, and then you begin to you're kind of like, well, whose fault is this? I mean, if eggs are three times as much and beef is twice as much and a car is, I mean, the, the, we read last week, 15%, 20% of all car payments are now over $1,000 a month. When did that happen? I think Charles may have called in and said a Tesla is a $100,000 face mask. I mean, there's some sarcasm there. But, but once again, when you get to civil unrest, and civil unrest starts bumping into the, the ungovernable aspects of society, uh, an underlying sentiment is and always has been inflation. 
when people become so economically distressed, nervous, and anxious that they, they revert to behaving in ways that they historically do not. Did you sense in Jim's voice, uh, I don't want to say an anger, but but a, a frustration, meet me on aisle such and such. I mean, we talked to Jim for years. Jim's a, a, a smart, measured man. But but you sensed in him a little bit of um a little bit of immeasure, a little bit of I've had enough of this, and, and I'm just telling you that that once again, very few people own a cattle farm in a border town where they're worried about the existence of their livelihood. Not not a lot of us are affected by you know, or not not marginally affected, or excuse me, not um, majorly affected by some of the tax code changes. But but when people believe that they're being treated unfairly by the amount of, uh, in other words, why is this costing this much? I mean, I didn't bring this on myself. I mean, I've done kind of sort of what I'm supposed to do. And the next thing you know, my paycheck goes about half as far as it did. And you begin looking around and you combine that with these, um, I mean, the, the, these, these, these overreach programs the government has been very endorsing of, um, you got to shut your business down. You got to wear that mask. You got to socially distance. You got to believe what we tell you to believe. And I just think we're headed to a very, very questionable age of American government. Can it redeem itself? I don't know. I don't have any idea what the future holds. But I do know this. I know there's always been an element in society that were contrarian, cynical, questioning of authority. I mean, I would be in that group. That group's getting larger and larger and larger and larger. And the majority of people who are beginning to enter kind of that realm of thinking are doing it because they go to the grocery store. They, they, they go to the ball game. They know what a ticket used to be and what it is now. They know what gas used to be and what it is now. They, they know what electricity did cost and what it costs now. And, and they're go, you know, the, the whole, they just feel they have this sensation that the world is pitted against them. And they're fighting for their very survival. And they normally would look to government as some sort of aid or assistance. And now they're beginning to look at the government and say, no, you're the ones that brought all this on. I mean, how can I trust you? And, and I just think that we're, edi- we're, 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 we're edging off into an era of not just political discontent, but, but there's a moment in time sooner than later. Once again, my kids will live to see this. I don't know that I will. When, when the American people say, I refuse to be governed by a government that has lost the moral authority to have, you know, that sort of influence and dictate the terms and conditions which I am allowed to live my life. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, Ken, what you're talking about is, I call it wallets into wheelbarrows. You can watch that about what went on with some of these governments back after World War One. But uh, round 15, just a little history lesson, Thriller Manila, it ended after round 14, the first Ali Frazier fight, it went into round 15. And I don't know, Ken, did you have the chance to witness some of this stuff on Friday night? I did. I never saw you know, Friday night. Yeah, I did. I watched, Um, I listened to a lot of commentary. I read a lot of the articles. But, yeah, I stayed on Friday night and observed. Okay, well, the, the Gates and Bobert show, that was on Hannity at 9 o'clock. They were together on Hannity. Uh, I don't know why I watch CNN sometimes. I mean, I kind of like CNN in a way because I witnessed them when they first started 43 years ago. But old Philly Jake Tapper, I mean, they've got this, I call it a pre-narrative. It's going to turn into their narrative. But, you know, what this is a chaotic mess. 
All they can do is investigate. They can't legislate. A weaker speaker, and everybody thinks of Nancy Pelosi as the speaker. She's not the speaker. Not anymore. She was. But it's like you're you're discounting Nancy Pelosi if you're going to attack the speaker. I heard Massachusetts Democrats talking about endangering national security. That's kind of weird. And I think one of the worst ones, you are stalling the business of government. And if that's the most ironic statement you ever hear, you are stalling the business of government. Um, that, that, that scares me more than anything. And I was going to ask you guys, did you see the Rolling Stone top 200 singers changing subject real quick? I did not. I've not seen that. You have not seen that. Ken, you have to see this from a man. Um, it'll show you about how critics think. You guys look top 200 singers, Rolling Stone magazine. They have Bob Dylan listed as number 15. They have Elvis Presley entered at number 17. So if you want to get in the critical mind of the critics, uh, investigate that one. I'll leave you at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. That list would not have very much credibility if it's about singers and is, has Dylan way up that high and above Elvis. You kidding me? <laughs> it didn't say optics. It's not Cosmopolitan or GQ <laughs> magazine. We're talking about, um, yeah, Elvis was a far more gifted vocalist exactly. than Dylan. I'll agree, with singer. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. Let's go to the phone. Carol and Marion. Hello, Carol. Hello. Um, so you were talking about how um, countries die in uh, with inflation or something. I forget the exact wording you used. Well, I mean, inflation I to... inflation touches every aspect of our lives, and 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 when you when 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 the world becomes so inflated, when when macroeconomic stimulus leads to inflationary pressures, and the inflationary pressures cause disruption to the way normal people live their normal lives, they look for somebody to blame, and that's when they begin blaming government. And it very often leads to civil unrest. Um, and I wanted to remind everybody that the French Revolution was caused by that, because what people don't, most people don't realize, when Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake, she wasn't trying to, to be nice about it. She was just simply ignorant to what was going on with the people. The people were starving, and she was told... They don't even have bread. And her response was, well, let them eat cake. And that ultimately caused that disconnect between the government and the people is what ultimately caused the French Revolution and Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI's um, executions. Very well explained. Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate that call. Got some historians out there recounting history, but she's exactly right on the um, let them eat cake. The entire economic system in America today is predicated on growth. I mean, it is. Um, I read something over the weekend, uh, as I said earlier, when Republicans control government, certain industries do well. When other um, governments, uh, excuse me, when Democrats control government, other sectors of the economy do well. Uh, they've got their preferred special interest. Democrats have their preferred special interest. But, but it's all predicated on growth of the economy. And it seems to me, Rev, that the Democrats have agreed, in principle, that instead of um, growing the economy, let's grow the government. And, and I mean, I don't want to say Jeff insinuated that, but in a, in a weird way, um, in, in both, even when the Democrats pick favorites, 
let's say the Democrats have a list of favorites and the Republicans have a list of favorites. Um, I mean, the government has inside information as how the economy is going to perform based on the policies they uh, address. I mean, it, that's kind of insider. I mean, they, it, it really and truly is legalized insider trading. Let me say that again. I mean, if you're a member of Congress and, and you're involved in some of these, you know, behind the scenes conversations, I mean, you're basically, you have inside information about how government regulation or policy is going to relate to a certain sector of the economy. Um, so, so when you've got um, Democrats in charge, there is a... Um, that there is, or when Democrats when Democrats control the government, they're in charge. Certain sectors of the economy do better than other sectors of the economy. We're talking about green energy, let's use green energy and fossil fuel. So, but but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's still predicated on what growth. Whether it's a green energy powered economy or a fossil fuel powered economy, it's about growth. We've got to have growth. If we don't, um, I mean, the, the the macroeconomics that we've so depended on for generations just refuse to operate as they should. Well, what has changed, in my opinion, I actually marked up some of these articles, the Democrats are now, or appear to be, let me say this, the Democrats appear to be uh, prepared to sacrifice growth for redistribution. We don't care if the economy gets that much bigger. We just want to make sure that the, 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 uh, the proceeds of the economy are directed in a certain way. When Jeff calls and says about, you know, tax cuts and raising taxes and, you know, who pays this and who pays that, we can debate that. I mean, we can really and truly say, well, I mean, the, the working class is paying more than their fair share. The, the, the uber successful corporations in the world, tax shelters and loopholes and, and credits and all these other ways, they avoid their tax liability. Okay. I mean, that's a fair debate. I, I think that is something we probably should have more of. Maybe the rules committee will allow that sort of debate in the house but when you look at the data and you say in 2012 the government took in 2.45 trillion dollars in tax receipts a decade later they're taking in 4.25 trillion dollars in tax receipts it's hard to convince me we're starving the government for money so so the economy has grown it's generated enormous tax receipts and the government has enjoyed the largesse of you know a growing economy but, but how much longer can the, can the economy grow? And, and there's a lot of people out there smarter than I that believe we're heading to the, um, to the precipice of a kind of a zero growing economy. And the Democrats are pretty cool with that. In other words, they'd rather control the revenue generated by the economy than, than create an economy or create policy that allows the economy to grow. Um, and a lack of growth will do what? I mean, think of this guy. Stick with me. I'm not an economist. I don't have to be. But a lack of growth will drive more people into lower class, right? I mean, if the economy's not growing, our lives are going to be kind of um, where they always are. Combine that with inflation, and, and, and you're poorer. It's hard to argue today. I mean, unless you've benefited from some of these government programs, it's hard to argue today that you're in a better place now than you were when Joe Biden took office. I mean, it really is. You're, you're making about the same thing you were but look at how much more expensive things are. And once again, the economy's not grown. There, there are some theories out there. I actually shared this with Reggie Armstrong over the weekend. There are some theories that have some credibility. I may try to get Reggie to talk about this in the next several weeks that believe Wall Street's long-term prospects are very dire 
because one political party in America has agreed that they're more interested in where the money goes than policies that dictate and allow for the growing of an economy. Look at the S&P. Look at NASDAQ. Look at the uh, Dow Jones in, uh, at the beginning of 2022 and the end of 2022. I mean, it's down 18%, 22%, 34%. And I mean, the government's still taking in as much money, that more money than they've ever taken in. Um, how can that be? You see where I'm, I mean, it, it, what, what one political party believes that that redistribution or the distribution of the dollars they collect is more important than creating policy that allows for growth. Our entire economic system is predicated upon a certain level of growth. And I, and I just think that when you when you go from 2.4, there's a reason the economy doesn't grow at 5 or 6% annually anymore. The government's taking too much liquidity out of the economy, too much prosperity out of the economy, putting it in the hands of a very inefficient allocator. I didn't say incompetent. I kind of mean that, but it's in a, in a, a very inefficient allocator of capital. I mean, we're getting in the weeds now, but there, there's some there, there's some macro and microeconomic theories out there that, that believe that if you're an investor in the United States, there, there is no good investment long-term because once again, our political class have decided that growth is not the priority, but rather kind of the redistribution of the proceeds of taxation. Take a break back in a minute. Eight, four, three, six, six, one, Oh, nine, three, seven takes Mondays to do what make, make, make Fridays. Fridays. So some of this stuff you're talking about, I mean, when you first started saying some of these things, I was like, okay. And just being a radio host, just, being provocative, throwing stuff out there for conversation, thought, and whatever. And now here we are talking about it and I mean, seeing some of it. Okay, do you, not, do you not believe the American people have the potential to be ungovernable? I do. I wonder what it looks like, though. Well, I mean, okay, stick with me for a second. You care about that cattle farmer. I mean, I know you do. Sure. You're, you're a good and decent American. You know it's not right for that cattle farmer in West Texas to be concerned about um, illegal immigrants storming his facilities or stealing his, his equipment or any. I mean, you know you care about that. You, you care about a lot of things, but do you care about those people as much as you do your plight in life? Of course not. I mean, we're all Obviously self-preservationists. Right. I mean, I love Freehold. I mean, I, I build a rapport with Freehold. I think if Freehold, Freehold knows now that, that if something in his world was wrong, that he felt like I could help, he'd come through that door after or before the show and say, hey, can I talk to you about something? Oh, he knows I'd give it a yeoman's shot. Same thing with him. I mean, if, you know, if I had, need help in New Jersey, I'd reach out. to. I mean, we, we all have this sincerity of community. I mean, I, you know, I want to see Rev do good. I want to see Freehold do good. But we all have these genuine concerns about our existence, our lives, our well-being, our, 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 our futures. And, and inflation is scary. I mean, when we see the cattle farmer in the border town, we, we, we're concerned about that. But we go back to doing whatever it is we choose to do. But when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the gas station, or as Henry McMaster famously said, the filling, filling station. station. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. When does that do it? That's old school. During the hurricane when Henry said, don't everybody go to the filling station at one time. Said, Damn, Henry. <laughs> You're talking about old side. Wow. Okay. Um, and he still won. Uh, anyway. Um, but but now we, we all, those things resonate in the first person. I mean, they, they are right before our very eyes and we begin to be nervous. We get concerned. You know how much you make, you know how much you need. 
You know what brings comfort in your financial existence? Um, and all of a sudden, you know, beef is twice as expensive. You're not buying caviar. You're not buying Dom Perignon. I mean, you're trying to li- live a, a, a good middle-class life, which is what the majority of Americans try to do. And, and it brings about this unease. And I think the unease manifests or morphs itself into some uh, kind of a civil unrest. And, and I think after civil unrest is civil disobedience. And I think we are going to see a time in America in the next 50 or 60 years, I will not probably be alive. Now, some think it'll happen sooner than this. Well, the American people just say, no, you have lost the authority to govern me. Now, now what that looks like, I don't have any idea. Is it anarchy? I guess. I mean, if you've got a disobedient public, but if you've, if you've got a majority of Americans who just say, no, I'm not doing what you say do because I don't trust you to look after my fate and future like I will myself. Now, now once again, you're right, Rev, there's some provocateur in, in that debate. But I read a lot because of this radio show. And there are some mainstream um, mainstream writers and, and I guess they'd be pundits in some way, shape, or form. But I mean, they're, they're, they're credible. I mean, they're not nuts. They're not wackos. They're, they're um, historians, and they see what happened in the French Revolution. They see what happened in Nazi Germany. Why, why did Adolf Hitler get elected? I mean, I'm not saying this because of one word, but, you know, if I had to come up with one word, you know what it would be? Inflation. I mean, really and truly, if somebody said, give me, give me a one-word answer on why Adolf Hitler got elected in, um, in Germany, in Nazi Germany, it would have been inflation. I mean, that, that would be the one-word answer. So when, when Jim calls and says, and I just think that was kind of a stirring comment. Jim says, meet me on aisles. I mean, you hear the, the tension in his voice. And I think and many, serious, many, serious many Americans are feeling that they're being unfairly taken advantage of by the government. And, and I think COVID really exacerbated the problem in a way. Not, not only do we tell you what to do and how to do it, um, you know, the, these businesses, I mean, my wife's a hairdresser, hairdresser. My wife is a live and let live, moderately conservative Republican. I don't think she'd mind me saying that. My wife could not come to grips with the fact that a government agency would disallow her from doing her job. I mean, I'll never forget that because she's heard me say, hey, we'll get there one day. And she's like, stop. I mean, just stop with that nonsense. I mean, the government would never tell me that I can't go do my job. Well, I mean, a pandemic hits. And then Rahm Emanuel famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Is there, is there a way we can control people even more than we previously did? And I think people like my wife are skeptical of that. I think people like my wife are like, truly, that's not their motivation to control me. I mean, my crazy husband thinks it is. <laughs> but, but surely, I mean, you, you have a real hard time convincing me that government has a desire to control more and more aspects of my life. No, I absolutely believe that. I think there's a mentality in bureaucracy and in, in government agencies, the more control they have over you, the, the more commanding they are of where the country goes, they believe they know best anyway, right? I mean, they, they, you know, the bureaucracies in America, they believe that they have the answers. They believe if we'll all kind of line up and follow suit, we'll all end up in a better place. And yeah, but I, I think... No question about it. I think we're living in an era where people are beginning to be alarmed, not just concerned, but alarmed about what extent government's willing to do to demonstrate their ability to control X percentage of our population. I'm not saying there's a guy in the back room keeping notes 
and say 27% of this state, 37% of that state. But remember earlier we talked about masculinity and, and courage? I mean, if you walk into a, um, I mean, if a, if a perpetrator of a crime walks into a business and in that business, I mean, he's there to rob the business and there are five people and there's one guy, 6'2", 220, looks like he goes to the gym three or four days, looks like he may have a gun on him. He's got a tattoo of a, um, you know, a bald eagle on his arm. I mean, I hate to be stereotyping here, but I mean, Josie Wells shot the guy that he thought was wild-eyed. In the movie, The Outlaw Josie Wells, and the guy said, Josie, why'd you shoot him first? Because he was wild-eyed. Well, I mean, that, 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 him as the that, that guy kind of, that's exactly right. And the guy in the corner, 6'2", 220, goes to the gym. He embodies some of this masculinity, some of this, this courage. He may be the guy that doesn't, you know, doesn't allow himself to be taken advantage of. So, so I think the government has intentionally and incrementally designed a system that forces us to be more governed more organized more orderly conditioned to conformity is how i've said it over and over and over again and if you buck if you're rambunctious if you get out of line um you know you get put on a list and they deal with you accordingly i believe that with every fiber of my body let's go to the phone roger and coward morning roger good morning fellas um on a less serious governmental note, but on an inflationary note, I was just thinking about this as you talked about inflation. I got a personal example, and I was just trying to do the math, even though I were, I'm not great at math. Uh, in 1981, or January 1st of 82, I went to the Orange Bowl, the first uh, Clemson National Championship. I got a ticket about five rows up from the actual field of play. The ticket cost $20. In ninth, and I was in my second year of teaching at the time. My salary was about $12,000 a year. If I were still teaching today, uh, my salary would be close to $70,000 with my education and experience. It would be close to $70,000. Do the math as to what the national championship ticket cost you today. It would be equivalent to around $140, $50. Try to buy a ticket to the game for that. <laughs> I mean, and you've talked about colleges before. Where does this end? Where do people back up and say to the colleges or anybody else, no, I'm not going to pay that anymore. You can charge it if you want to. You'll have an empty stadium. We're not going to pay it. I, I can go further. When are people going to say, I'm not buying my 16-year-old boy a $70,000 a year truck. That's that's idiotic. I mean, to buy a $70,000 truck for a high school student is idiotic. If you do that, I'm sorry, you're an idiot if you do that. Where does it back up, Ken? That's a good question. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate the call. Um, And I liked it so much when Clemson fans didn't say that was our first national champion. (laughs) I like those 40 or so years where they said that was our only <laughs> national champion. But, you know, as, as I illustrate, you don't always get exactly uh, what it is you want. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I really and truly don't. I mean, my daughter's at the University of South Carolina. I know what it costs. It's absurd. I mean, it, it's crazy how much things cost today. But, but we've financialized the economy. Um, the financialization of the economy is what's allowed people to continue on the path you know what I mean? We, we don't buy things anymore. We finance things now. It, it, how much a month? I mean, how much a month? I mean, that's kind of the way, how much longer 
do I have uh, talked to a banker Thursday, I think, and he was talking about the percentage of loans, the percentage of all loans. We're talking about 15%. That's about 20% now. Twice as many car loans today as two years ago have a payment of over $1,000 a month. But I asked my banker friend, I said, you know, um, what is the average car, the term of finance? He said, um, seven years. I mean, seven years we're financing. I mean, I can remember when I, and I'm not an old guy, but I can, I mean, I'm midlife, but I can remember when you were crazy if you financed it four years. So we've gone from a normal finance of three or four years to a normal finance of six or seven years. Um, why? Because we can afford it. It's not, you know, how much am I buying the car for? What am I paying monthly for the car? The house. That goes back to the financialization of the economy. Who gets wealthy when everything is financed? The financialization of the economy mm -hmm. makes the financial sector, um, you know, more prosperous. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Time for our Pepsi of Florence. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Trivia question tonight. There's a game being played for the college football national championship. One of the um one of the most familiar teams of our part of the country is the Georgia Bulldogs. The other team not so familiar, TCU. Uh, the Horn Frogs against the Bulldogs. Here's my trivia question. You ready? What does TCU stand for, and what city are they located in? you got to come up with both of the answers. What does TCU stand for, and what city are they located in? 843-661-0937. First caller wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's Pepsi t-shirts. Do we have a call? Don't. Okay. One rang and what does TCU up. stand for, and what city is it um? Is it a university residing in? Hi, you're on the air. Do you know the answer? Uh, Texas Christian University, and they're in Fort Worth. You are right. Who is this and where are you calling from? Uh, T.C. Fowler. Okay, T.C. South Carolina. Thanks for listening. I'm going to hold on. Hold on just a couple of minutes, and um, we'll get you back to Freehold. He'll get that information to make sure um, that when you come to pick up their Pepsi products, they're there, as well as the uh, the Pepsi T-shirts. Thanks for, um, for listening, T.C., Texas Christian University is a private research university in Fort Worth, Texas, established in 1873 by brothers Addison and Randolph Clark as the and ran male and female college. It is affiliated with the Christian Church, um, Disciples of Christ. It's in Fort Worth, Texas, and tonight they'll both be in California competing for college football's national championship no tailgating allowed well, uh, no tailgating allowed unless you're vegetarian but if you're vegetarian <laughs> and a transgender then you can uh, tailgate in california stop playing the, the college football championship game in california really i mean seriously play it either in the midwest or the south that's where the hotbeds of college football are uh big 10 country sec country and clemson i mean obviously i'm not you know I mean, the ACC would be part of the footprint of the SEC, but the ACC doesn't have that intensity of football um, that the Big Ten and um, and SEC do. But uh, I don't know what – I mean, I, I think Georgia wins because they've got better players, but there's something about TCU. There's something about destiny and fate that lead me to believe, you know, the improbable could happen. Uh, I think they're getting 13 points, if I'm not mistaken. And no, there is no G on getting. That's G-E-T-T-I-N, in case you're asking, because I hear some smart out I got there going, it ain't pronounced getting. Um, I could say getting if I wanted to. 
I just I just prefer saying getting, uh, and there's no G on saying. Um, <laughs> but what do you think happened, Riff? I think Georgia wins. Okay. I do. Because they're supposed to win. Yeah. They've just got better players. You I know, think th- so. Th- there's kind of a tried and truism in college athletics or professional sports. The better team normally wins. You know, the old uh, adage or cliche, uh, you never know. You don't. I mean, you never do know for sure. But the odds are the better team wins. That's why they're called odds makers. And the odds makers have made Georgia a 13-point favorite. And if Kirby Smart wins his second national championship in his first seven years as a head football coach, is that the best start ever in college football? He's played for another. I mean, he actually lost one and will have one twice if he wins tonight. Yeah, not too shabby. Playing for three national championships in seven years and winning two that might be the best start in the history of college football. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow. Uh, as an SEC brethren, go dogs. <laughs>